Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and tonight we're celebrating a couple of birthday anniversaries, including that of the last comedian to make his mark in the golden age of radio, Stan Freeberg, both on his own show and in a dramatic role on Suspense. We'll hear from one of the most accomplished comedians of the 20th century, stage and screen, Billy Burke, co-starring with John Barrymore on the Rudy Valley Seal Test Show, plus Gunsmoke, Dragnet, Sergeant Preston on Challenge of the Yukon, and real-life detectives crack a case on the CBS Radio Workshop. So relax. Put away the worries of the week just ended. Don't think about what may crop up beginning tomorrow. And instead, put your imagination to work here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. We're working our way back to our favorite embodiment of the man with the action-packed expense account, the actor Bob Bailey. And as we make our way back, we're going to hear again tonight from the first artist ever to play the role on air, Charles Russell. The tone of these early episodes owes a lot to the film and radio noir of the late 1940s when they were produced, but much more to the invention and arch attitude of the writers, Gil Dowd and Paul Dudley. You'll hear all of those elements and a reference to the old flashbulbs used by photographers in the Robert W. Perry case, the March 4th, 1949 episode of the CBS series, Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. The Columbia Broadcasting System presents Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. The next half hour has its baggage packed to take a trip with America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, Johnny Dollar. At insurance investigation, he is just an expert. At making out his expense account, he is an absolute genius. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Home Office, American Continental Life Insurance Company, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of my expenditures fulfilling your assignment as a uh, a bodyguard. The body being that of your late policyholder, Robert W. Perry. Expense account item one. Fare on night train, Hartford to New York, $3.80. Expense account item two... $1.80, taxi to Lower Manhattan the following morning. Two officers, Perry and Van Bruten, importers, arriving as promised at exactly 9 a.m. Good morning. May I help you? Yeah, my name is Johnny Dollar. I have an appointment with Mr. Perry for 9 o'clock. Oh, yes, from the insurance company. Well, you're right on time. Yeah, they told me I'd better be. Mr. Perry just came in. He's alone and waiting for you. I'll buzz him that you're here. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. 
what was left of your policyholder, Mr. Perry, was just sliding out of his swivel chair as I hit the room. The top of his desk had erupted, and splinters of mahogany pointed their sharp fingers upward through lazy circles of smoke swirling toward the ceiling. The buzzer from his secretary's desk had been rigged to a booby trap. Oh, oh no, Mr. Perry. Stay away from him. There's nothing you can do for him. He's dead. Oh, what happened? What happened? Whatever happened? Come on, we, let's, let's get back out of here. Here you are now. Sit down. I'll get you a drink of water. Uh, just drink this. What happened? We, we had an explosion. I turned in the alarm. Is anybody hurt? There's a doctor on the third floor. Should I call him? Never mind the doctor. Call the police. And nobody gets in here until they arrive. And the rest of you, go on, beat it. Run along. And turn off that alarm. Okay, miss. Now, just take it easy. But it was all so sudden. What happened? Well, that's not too hard to figure out. Somebody wanted to give your boss, Mr. Perry, a shortcut through life. So whoever it was figured out that a secretary would never buzz her boss unless he was at his desk. They rigged up a bomb somewhere in his desk that would go off when you buzzed him. Oh, but, but I killed him. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't get hysterical on me. There's excitement enough around here, and there'll be plenty more when the police get here. Keep cool. But I did it. You saw me do it. Look, the way you put it, I killed him by coming in here and giving you my name so you'd buzz him. Drop it, will you? I'm sorry. Now, uh, what about yesterday? Was he here? Yes, all day. What time was it when you last used the buzzer? Wait, right up to the last minute, about 5.30. Uh, who left the office first, you or Perry? Mr. Perry, he always leaves first, and I lock up. Uh-huh. Looks of things, you should have used more locks last night. Somebody got in here to do some wiring. Uh-oh, I forgot that fire alarm. All that equipment and no fire. Look, before the police arrive, do you know why I was sent here? Yes. Mr. Perry recently felt that his life was in danger. He thought that, well, with a $100,000 policy, the insurance company would do everything they could to help keep him alive. Well, we didn't have much of a chance, did we? What was he afraid of? I don't know. Okay. What were his other appointments for today? He only had two. His partner, Mr. Van Bruten, at 11, and then... One at a time, now. Van Bruten. Anything special about their meeting? Yes. Mr. Van Bruten arrived just yesterday from Holland. You mean there was a branch of this firm in Holland? Yes, and Mr. Perry was buying out Van Bruten's interest. They had their final meeting at Van Bruten's hotel last night. Oh? Van Bruten was coming by this morning to pick up his money. Uh, cash? No, a cashier's check. The bank is to deliver here at 10.30. Now, quick, Perry's other appointment. Who was that? Christine, his wife. Oh, yeah. Now Christine, the beneficiary. Yes, but she wouldn't have been the beneficiary in another two weeks. They were getting a divorce. Thanks for the motive. You don't like her? I didn't mean it that way. How about Perry? Did you like him? Okay, well, here's an easy one. What's your name? Susan. Susan Gates. Now, isn't that about enough? Okay, Susan. You'd better save your voice. During the next few hours, you're going to have a lot of talking to do. Oh, here come the firemen, and we haven't even got a child to ask them to save. Where's the fire? I'm looking for a fire. Just stick around. When the cops get here, somebody will get burned. The firemen should have stuck around because the cops arrived in a blaze of glory. It was a very high-class investigation. Two lieutenants. Finally, after about an hour, the police photographer ran out of flashbulbs, the office of the deceased ran out of fingerprints, 
and the lieutenants ran out of questions. So the on-the-scene phase of the investigation was closed. At about five minutes of 11, I left the police to pack up their notebooks, their clues, and the body, and went into the outer office. Susan looked like she could use a big, broad shoulder to weep on, but unfortunately, I was wearing my light gray suit. About then, a dark blue suit and a deep green voice entered the room from the corridor. Say, there's some fella out here who says he belongs here. His name is Van Bruten. Shall I let him in? Oh, what do you think? His name is on the door you just opened. Oh, indeed, now. Well, my name happens to be Murphy, and it's on beds all over the country. But that don't mean I'm stuffed with feathers, does it? This will teach you, Johnny Dutta, never to cross tongues with an Irishman. Okay, send him in, officer. Yeah. All right, you can come in. The policeman out there. Is there trouble here? Oh, uh, I am Bremer Van Bruten. Where's Mr. Perry? What? He's waiting for me, no? No. But my appointment... He's not keeping any. He's dead. Dead? This is impossible. Last night I saw him. He was well. What happened? He was hit by a buzz bomb. Please. Oh, sorry, I forgot other people aren't used to these things. You mean that was foul play? Very foul. Please, may I sit down? My first visit in all these years, since before the war. It was to be so happy. Now, tragedy like this. He was a good man, a good partner. I understand that as of last night, you were no longer partners. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I realize, of course, that it is indelicate to speak of such things as money at a time like this. But that is why I'm here, to receive my payment. Oh, just because Perry got his, there's no reason for you not getting yours, huh? But you misunderstand me. I am deeply grieved. Since the transaction was consummated, what is there to do? A delay would be a needless waste of money. I have already paid for passage back to Amsterdam tomorrow. Your check is here, Mr. Van Bruten. Here you are. Thank you. In all my years of business, this is indeed the saddest moment. Yeah. Yeah, those are very kind words, Van Bruten. And I'd believe them if your eyes would stop counting all the zeros on that check. <laughs> Expense account, item three, 90 cents. Phone call to your company. American Continental Life Insurance Company. Good morning. Oh, well, that's a matter of opinion. This is Johnny Dollar. Put me through to Mr. Gordon, will you? Yes, sir. Mr. Gordon's office. Look, honey, this is Johnny Dollar. I want to speak to Gordon. Oh, and uh, while I'm telling him what I've got to tell him, maybe you'd better sit in his lap with some smelling salts. I'm not that type of a secretary. And besides, he doesn't have a lap. Hello, Dollar. How are you making out? I owe about $100,000. What's that? Yeah, somebody turned Mr. Perry into a firecracker. He's dead. Oh, that's bad news. It's a big policy, you know. Yeah. Look, what I want to know is, shall I stay on the case? Oh, certainly, Dollar. Certainly, by all means. Uh, by the way, is, uh, is there a chance of uh, proving suicide? There's a non-payment clause. To make this one a suicide, there'd have to be a Santa clause. Nobody could hate himself enough to do it this way. What are the fraud possibilities? Uh, only fair. There's an estranged wife. She's the beneficiary, but uh, she wouldn't have been in a couple of weeks. Divorce coming up. I'll start with her. Uh, all right, Tyler. Good luck. But watch those expenses. Why, Gordon, I'm surprised. I think an insurance man would be the first to want to see a fellow live a little. <laughs> Expense account, item three. Cab fare, $2.80. Tip to driver, $1.00. Christine Perry's apartment was on Sutton Place, overlooking the river. 
And from what the doorman told me, all of the proprieties. I took the elevator up to the 24th floor, and there I discovered that our garden fresh widow was living high in more ways than one. Everything about the place was French. The maid that led me into the living room, the decor, and the perfume, which reminds you that breathing can be fun. I looked up from enjoying my nose to see Mrs. Perry looking down hers. Mr. Dollar? Oh, Mrs. Perry. I believe we can dispense with any getting acquainted. You're an insurance investigator, interested in the death of my husband. So naturally, you're here because you've jumped to the conclusion that I killed him. Oh? You're the one that's jumping to conclusions, lady. Then what do you want? The policy's in order, the premiums are fully paid. I'm not quite sure. I know that you've got a great motive. So far, the only motive I've found... You haven't had much time to look, have you? Check. This is my first stop. Maybe you can help me. Do you know anyone who would be happier with your husband out of the way? I know very little about my husband's friends. Or for that matter, his activities for the past six months. That's when I left him. Uh-huh. Well, that's not much help for either of us. You know, without someone else to suspect, I may just have to concentrate on you. Mr. Dollar, I picked the men I want to concentrate on me. Well, I hope you're as long on alibis as you are short on your temper. Where were you last night? With a friend, Al Donovan. For a while, the same place my husband was. And I have witnesses to prove who was with him. Anybody at the club Caprice can tell you. Well, save me a trip. I can't afford the prices they get there. Certainly, pleasure. My husband was with his beautiful little secretary, Susan Gates. Well, I wouldn't be more surprised if your late husband walked through the door and said that... All right, mister, that's enough. Oh. Yeah. How, how much did you I'm hear? a big guy, baby, six foot four, and I've got big ears to... Oh, please. Would this be Mr. Donovan, your companion of last evening? I'm getting you out of here, Christine. I don't know what you're saying. You lie to me. How can I help you if you lie to me? You call me stupid. The way you're playing this, you'll alibi yourself right into a cell. I'm getting you out of here. What are you doing to me, Al? You're crazy. Come on. She's right. You are stupid, Donovan. She was doing just fine till you dropped in. Mister, you've been asking a lot of questions. Now I'll give you one answer. All right, Christine. So much for the wise guy. Now about you and your alibi. You wasn't with me at the Club Caprice last night. And if it's so easy to prove your husband was there with his secretary, who were you there with? You told me you were going with your husband. Talking divorce, remember? When Al measured me for that swing, I measured my chances with him. To me, he looked like one of the corporate assets of Murder Incorporated. So I rolled with a punch, hit the floor, and stayed there, with my eyes closed and my ears open. What I heard was Christine's alibi flying out the window, Mr. Donovan giving her a few loving cuffs, and finally the pair of them flying out the door. I allowed myself the luxury of a 20-second massage on the new lump on my jaw, and then I got up, and started out after them. This case was becoming interesting. In just a moment, we'll return to the second act of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. But first, this important message. Sixty million dollars is what the Red Cross needs to carry on its great work in 1949. If this seems like a lot, just try to review briefly the various activities of the Red Cross. It can't be done briefly. Red Cross services extend into every area of our lives, bringing care, comfort, and recreation to the men in the armed forces, bringing first aid training, nutritional programs, nursing services, blood banks to our own communities. And all the time, 
As these activities go on uninterrupted, the Red Cross is holding itself ready to spring into instant action in case of disaster. Fire, flood, explosion, any sort of catastrophe finds the Red Cross on the scene with food, clothing, and medical care. Sixty million isn't so much in the light of such activity. We can make it with each of us contributing. We're giving to our own safety, security, and peace of mind, and to our neighbors, too. So let's give generously to our own Red Cross. And now back to the second act of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. I hit the street just in time to see Donovan pushing Christine Perry into a cream-colored convertible. When they got rolling, I piled into a cab and followed them, and the chase was on. At 57th and Broadway, things got complicated. My cab was three cars behind theirs when a red light flashed them to a stop. Then the door of their convertible flew open. Christine jumped out, dashed across the street, and down into the subway. Since Donovan didn't follow her, I followed him. When he finally pulled to a stop, he took two chances. He parked in a no-parking zone and walked straight into the building beside it, a police station. This is Mr. Dollar, Lieutenant. He's been waiting for you for some time. Huh? Well, you can wait outside, Sergeant. Okay, sir. Well, my name is Johnny Dollar, Lieutenant. Here are my credentials. Hmm. Insurance, huh? Yeah, the uh, Perry murder in particular. Hey, you've come to the right place, Dollar. A man named Donovan just walked in here and made a full confession. He what? That's right. My clerk's just typing it up. In the meantime, the gentleman is down in the tank having a bite of lunch on the city. He confessed. Does his story add up? As far as I know. I haven't heard too much about the case myself. It's not in my precinct. What did he use for a motive? Jealousy. Says he's in love. Wanted to marry Perry's wife. Uh, did he say how he managed it? Yeah. He stole a key to the office from the wife's apartment, entered the building last night, and wired a bomb to the buzzer system. Uh-huh. Well, guys do a lot of strange things in the name of love. Yeah, it looks like Donovan did. Yeah, he either killed a man or he's trying to cover up for someone who did. Now, listen, don't uh, execute him for a couple of days. How, huh, Lieutenant? I spent the rest of the afternoon downtown in the offices of Perry and Van Bruton, importers. The partner's correspondence told me two things. They had been extremely friendly, and uh, Van Bruten was extremely bald. Perry had been sending him toupees from a famous Hollywood makeup firm. At 4.30, I opened the drawer marked Employment Files. They rocked me with two minor explosions of their own. The folder marked Donovan, Albert J., told me that he'd been employed as Perry's bodyguard over a period of years, and that he was canned the day before the murder. Before I received blast number two from the folder of Perry's secretary, Susan Gates, the office door opened behind me. Well, Mr. Dollar, you're supplied with a search warrant, I hope? Just the one I was born with, Mrs. Perry. The kind they say kills cats. You know, curiosity. What are you looking for? I found it. How about you? What are you doing here? Oh, I... I'm tired of dueling with you. I'm here because I want to... Well, I've got to talk to someone. I called your hotel, you went there... I tried to locate Susan, but I couldn't, so I thought maybe you'd be down here. What's the basis of our sudden friendship? You should know. Al Donovan's confession. 
The newspapers have it already? Yes, but there's not a word of truth in it. He didn't kill my husband. How do you know that? Because, why, it's impossible, that's all. Yeah, it was a little hard for me to swallow, too, when the police told me about it. But since then, it's become a little more digestible. What do you mean? I just learned that he was your husband's bodyguard. He was fired yesterday. That same day, your husband calls his insurance company screaming for another bodyguard. Now, how would that add up for you? A beef, maybe? Al Donovan's a fool. Never thinks. He just rushes in and says he does whatever's on his mind. He told my husband if he didn't divorce me that... Well, he threatened him. You know, you came in here saying that Donovan's confession was no good. And you spend your time making it sound better and better. What do you want, anyway? I can't help it. I've got to tell you the truth. I know it doesn't sound like I'm trying to help Al, but what can I do? You really want me to answer that? Here. If you want to help Al, phone the police. Tell them Donovan made that phony confession to cover up for you. It's simple. Not as simple as that. You don't need the gun, Christine. Hang up the phone. Sure. I hope you don't mind my aversion to being held for murder myself. Well, that's a common aversion. I'm in no hurry to see you behind bars. But don't forget, when the cops want to pick you up, they'll do it. Now, don't spoil the rest of the afternoon. Take that gun someplace else. I've got things to do. The first, I imagine, will be the call that I wouldn't make. Not necessarily. If it'll make you feel any better, we'll just put this phone out of order. Satisfied? Of course not. But don't get me wrong, Mr. Dollar. I wish you nothing but success in your investigation. I puzzled over that exit line for a few seconds after she'd gone, and then I went back to the company's employment file. Namely, the application for employment as secretary of Susan Gates. It informed me that during the war she had worked in a munitions plant. Her specialty? Wiring bomb fuses. When Miss Susan Gates reached home at 8.30 that evening, she found a visitor, me. you get in here? A professional secret. Oh, you scared me. What do you want? Why did you come here? I wanted to bring you the good news. I uh, heard on the radio that Al Donovan confessed to Perry's murder. Al? I can't believe it. Why not? Who do you like for the spot? Why, Christine. Al is covering up for us. I'd like to agree with you. If it turns out that Christine wound up her husband's life with a bang, the company that hired me saves $100,000. But I don't know. She claims she has all kinds of alibis. One of them is you. Me? Yeah. Did you see her at the Club Caprice last night? Why, yes. I know who you were with. Your boss. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not preaching a sermon. I want to know who she was with. I don't know. man I'd never seen before. Mr. Perry knew him, but he wouldn't tell me who he was. Why not? I don't know. He said I might get the wrong idea. About what? I don't know. We didn't sit there and talk about it all night. Why should we sit here and talk about it all night? All right, all right. When a census taker shows up and asks a lot of questions, people answer them. When an investigator tries to do his job, they make the proverbial clam look like a blabbermouth. Look, Mr. Dollar, believe me, this has been a greater shock to me than to anyone else. Excepting, of course, your late employer, Mr. Perry. How long did you work for him? Four years. Now, where'd you work before then? Why, I... I... Let me help you. Bombs, wiring fuses, remember? 
All right, I remember. Good. Then maybe you'll remember a little bit more. Let's go back to last night. The guy with Christine Perry. Who was he? I tell you, I don't know. Was it Van Bruten? I don't know. You don't know? No, I mean... I'll get that. No, I'll go. You make sure you just don't keep going. (laughs) Susan! When Susan snapped the spring lock to open the door, the gun outside opened up. The first slug caught her in the left shoulder, spinning her out of the way of the rest of them. It was getting monotonous. Every time a buzzer went off, things started booming. Susan was sprawled out on the floor in front of the door. And to open it, I had to move her. By the time I did, the hallway outside was empty. Okay. Come on, take it easy. It won't start hurting for a couple of minutes. I'll have a doctor here by then. He'll give you something. Just try and keep calm. Here, I'll throw my coat over you. I'll try not to move. Trying to ruin this rug. Never mind the rug. What we want to worry about is who tried to ruin you. What'll they do to me? What will who do to you? They'll arrest me. No, they don't arrest people for getting shot. You have any idea who it was? That man in the office this morning. The one who picked up the check. Van Bruton? No, no, he wasn't Van Bruton. He was a phony. Yes. And you still gave him that check? Yes. Well, I won't ask you why. But apparently you gave him the money and then tried to blackmail him. Is that right? I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Who is this guy? Where can I find him? Uh, Come on, now, don't pass out on me now. His name, quick. Vincent. Where's he live? Nelson Hotel. Under his own name? Oh, I don't. I don't blame you. I could use a few moments of unconsciousness myself. Nelson Hotel didn't have a Dutch name on the register, so I got a hold of the housekeeper and found out how many rooms his staff hadn't been able to make up all day because of do-not-disturb signs on their doors. I went a-calling at these particular rooms. On the ninth floor, I awakened one old maid. On the seventh, I startled a bunch of poker players who thought they were being raided. On the fifth, I blushed my way out of the bridal suite. And on the fourth, I struck the door of 427 and the jackpot. Who's there? Don't you see the sign? I do not wish to be disturbed. Oh, uh, sorry. I must have the wrong room. I started up the hall after the fire axe, but when I got to it, I changed my mind. One of the few things I'd learned about this guy Van Sant was that he loved to murder people through doors, so I decided against trying to chop his down. Then I remembered the way those people came pouring out of those offices earlier in the day when they heard that fire alarm. So I picked up the little red hammer next to the big red fire axe, broke the little glass window, pulled the little brass hook, and set off a big brassy noise. Then I rushed back to 427. Fire! Fire! Where's the fire? Right here in my eyes, sweetheart. You, why you come here? You wish you hadn't. Never mind the dresser. You're you're through shooting guns for the day. What do you think, Vincent? You want to try some more? You cannot make me stay here. The fire, we will all die. You look good barbecued, but I'll make a deal with you. You talk. And if I like what I hear... I'll show you how to get out of here alive. How do I know this? Well, you don't think I'm going to stay here and fry, do you? And if you don't start flapping that tongue in a hurry, I'll probably just tie you to a chair and run. First, where's Van Bruten? You will find him in the bedroom. He better be alive. He's out cold. What's the matter with him? He will be all right. He's on the sedatives. Where did this identity switch start? You better hurry up. I smell smoke. 
I knew Van Bruten in Amsterdam. I knew about the sale of his interest. And I knew that the girl in the office here had never seen Van Bruten. Well, let's go now. Uh, don't get up. I can feel it getting warm in here. The firefighters. We will be saved. Now, don't be too sure. They always start at the top floor and work their way down. Come on, I can hear those flames crackling. You know the rest. Last night, when the transaction was all finished with Perry, I gave to Van Bruten some sedative and his cocoa. You set up that bomb so Perry'd get it before you showed up to pick up the check. Yeah, I told you that. Then it happened that girl didn't know I was an imposter. I don't know how. Well, let me tell you. She's been sending old Van Bruten in there two pays for the last four years. Gray ones, my red-headed friend. Oh, yeah. Let's get out of here, no? Yeah, out. Oh! Expense account item four, $1.40. Night letter informing you that American Continental would have to meet payment of claim to Mrs. Christine Perry, innocent widow of the insured. The only thing she was guilty of was trying to stay on the right side of a hot-tempered boyfriend. <laughs> she lied about who she was with at the Club Caprice, not to fix herself an alibi, but to keep Al Donovan from learning that she'd been out with another guy. That guy being the real Mr. Van Bruten, who had only taken her out to try to talk her into reconciling with his friend, her husband. Item five, $60, silver chafing dish. Wedding present for Christine and her new husband, Al Donovan. That was the least she could do for the guy who had confessed to a murder he thought she had committed. Item six, eight dollars. Flowers for Susan Gates, prison hospital. Item seven, fine for turn false alarm. One thousand dollars and no cents. And that's what I think I'm beginning to get for getting into this racket. No cents. Expense account total, twelve hundred and sixty-three dollars. Yours, uh, truly... Johnny Dollar. In just a moment, we'll tell you about next week's Johnny Dollar Adventure. But first, this reminder. Just a little earlier tonight on CBS, Jack Benny turned dramatic actor on the Ford Theater. But this Sunday, he'll be back again on his own show with a special treat for the Jack Benny fans. After the last broadcast on which the Ronald Coleman's appeared, thousands of letters came in from fans asking that Jack invite Ronnie and Benita back again soon. The Waukegan Wit did, and Ronnie and Benita, by popular demand, returned to the Jack Benny program this Sunday in what should result in one of the most hilarious broadcasts of the year. So be sure to listen to Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman on the Jack Benny Show, which is heard on all CBS stations this Sunday. Listen in again next week when CBS brings you Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, with Charles Russell as Johnny. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, is written by Paul Dudley and Gil Dowd, with music by Mark Warno, and is produced and directed by Richard Sandville for CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. The first actor to star as Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, on the air, Charles Russell, in the Robert W. Perry case, broadcast in the winter of 1949. It came to you from the big broadcast over WAMU. 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz.
In our summer-long dive into vintage radio shows that were targeted to young people, we're going to hear one now that'll resonate with a lot of older listeners who remember its television incarnation. What started out in the 1930s as Challenge of the Yukon changed its name in the 1950s to a title that carried over into TV, Sergeant Preston of the Yukon. Like those other successful series, The Lone Ranger and The Green Hornet, this one came from the Detroit, Michigan studios of radio station WXYZ. And, like those other heroes, Sergeant Preston had a sidekick, only his was a dog, a husky or malamute named Yukon King. Several actors played Sergeant Preston over the years, and we're going to hear the voice of Paul Sutton in the role. It's a deep, resonant voice that would have been instantly recognizable to a young listener. And the snowbound, windswept, freezing scenes that this story conjures up are especially welcome during these hot summer days, as they must have been 75 years ago in the summer of 1947, when this episode called The Puppy was broadcast over the ABC network by the series Challenge of the Yukon. The Challenge of the Yukon! It's King, swiftest and strongest lead dog of the North Country, blazing the trail for Sergeant Preston of the Northwest Mounted Police in his relentless pursuit of lawbreakers. Gold, gold discovered in the Yukon, a stampede to the Klondike in the greedy race for riches. Now back to the days of the gold rush when Sergeant Preston and his wonder dog King battled through storm and snow to preserve law and order as they met the challenge of the Yukon. Sergeant Preston, with his dog King at his side, knocked at the door of Jim Crane's cabin on the outskirts of Dawson. The door was opened by young Tommy, Jim's 12-year-old son. Hello, Sergeant Preston. Come in. How are you, King, old fella? How are you, Tommy? Your father here? He'll he'll be here any minute now, I think. Uh, He went over to Tim Lacey's to look at some furs. Take your park off and sit down, Sergeant. Thanks, Tom. I came over to have a look at those sled dogs your dad has to sell. They're out in the kennels. Did did Dad tell you that Vixen had her pups? Yes. They're uh, about ten days old now, aren't they? Yeah, and the cutest things you ever saw. I've got one of them right here in this box. Well, will King hurt him if I show him to you? Oh, no. King won't hurt a puppy. Come here, King. Down, boy. Oh, look at him, Sergeant. Isn't he a beauty? Oh, I should say so. Let's have a look at you, young fellow. Well... It's a good dog. Nice bones and build. His stomach is all swollen up. Guess he ate too much dinner. (laughs) That reminds me of the last case I was on. Was it that bank robbery? Yes, Tom. I just got back a few days ago. I heard something about it. Gee, Sergeant, what happened? Will you tell me about it? As long as you're going to be waiting for Dad, you'll have time. Why, sure. But you'd uh, better put this little fellow back in his box. I think he's sleepy. Guess I'd better. He always gets sleepy after he eats. There you are, Spot. Go to sleep. Chief Sergeant, I've been waiting to hear about you getting those robbers. You discovered that the bank had been robbed before anybody, didn't yes, you? Yes, I did. But the robbery was evidently planned about a week before. There were two men who arrived in Dawson about that time with the names of Hank Sims and Tim Johnson. They came into the Gold Nugget Bar quite often, but didn't mix with the other men very much. 
However, they did manage to meet Jed Wilcox, the old man who sleeps in the back room of the bank. They called him to their table one night. Look over there, Jim. That's the old Kaji I was telling you about. He don't look very dangerous. <laughs> you sure he's the one who guards the bank? Pretty sure. He's coming this way. This is as good a time as any to find out. Uh, hello, mister. Uh, oh, howdy. Well, I don't remember seeing you in town before. You strangers? <laughs> Sit down and get acquainted. Uh, I won't be able to stay with you long. I got to go to work. You don't work at night, do you? Yep, I do. I came up to the Yukon to look for gold, same as everybody else, but my luck ran out on me, I guess. Before I hit any pay dirt, I had a bad accident. I slipped on some ice and injured my back. I was in a pretty bad spot, I can tell you. Are you the bank clerk? Oh, no, no. I ain't very good at figures. I just sleep in the back room, watching it from there. That sounds easy enough. Well, it ain't too hard, but it don't pay much. I guess I'm lucky to be working at all, though. Hank and Tim waited almost a week before going ahead with their plan... They bought a good dog team and loaded up with supplies. And at midnight, one night when it was snowing and cold and the town was quiet, they drove up to the bank. Can you get it open, Tim? Getting locks open is my business. This is nothing. There, it's open. Easy now. You get over and turn that lantern down a little. Someone might see us from the street. I'm going to need a little light to crack that safe. There ain't anybody on the street. We're safe enough. Old Jed is a sound sleeper. Yeah. Oh, you clumsy fool. I couldn't help it. It slipped out of my hand. You woke the old man up. Get over there beside that door. Who, who's there? Hey, what are you doing? <coughs> yeah, that did it. You won't give us any trouble now. Oh, good. I wonder if the old duffer saw me. He didn't get a chance. I got him the minute he stuck his head in. I'll tie him up and gag him. Now, you get back and see what you can do about that safe. We better get out of here fast. I was coming home from a patrol north and got into town early that morning before anybody was up. When I passed the bank, I noticed that the door was open. I stopped the dog team and decided to have a look. Hucking! Hucking! Come along, Tom. There's nobody here. What is it, King? Jed. Uh, wait a minute. I'll get that gag out of your mouth. There. Are you hurt? Uh, thanks, Sergeant. I'm hurt, but not too bad. Good. I'll untie these ropes. There. Oh, I've been lying on this floor all night. I'm cold and stiff. I'll help you up, Jed. Now, sit over here near the stove. There's not much fire in it, but I'll poke it up. Uh, hey, the bank's been robbed, Sergeant. Tell me about it while I fix this fire. Oh, I got a lump on my head the size of a hen's egg. They hit me with the butt of a gun. It's lucky I got a good thick head. I wouldn't be here to tell you about it. Did you get a look at them at all? Yes, I saw one of them. Huh? It's a man who's been hanging around the gold nugget bar for about a week. He's a big fellow with a scar on his face from his 
Left eye down to his lip. His beard don't cover it. Well, I heard the bartender call him Hank one night. Maybe he can tell you something about it. I'll check there later. Now, uh, tell me what happened. Well, I sleep in the back room here, you know. Yes? Well, last night I woke up and thought I heard a noise. I keep lantern burning in here all night. So I got my gun and came to see what was wrong. When I opened the door, I saw this Hank standing in the middle of the room. Just then, something hit me from behind. His partner was probably waiting beside the door when you opened it. I never knew what hit me. When I woke up, I was tired and gagged and couldn't move a muscle. It's a wonder they didn't kill you. This, this Hank fellow didn't know what a good look I got of him. Or he probably would have. He... He just happened to be standing where the lantern light showed up that scar on his face. How much did they take? We had over $50,000 worth of gold in this bank. And they took every bit of it, I suppose. Well, we checked, and the thieves had taken everything they could carry. $50,000 worth of gold and dust and nuggets is a heavy load. It had snowed early that morning, but I remembered seeing rather a fresh trail when I came into town. The tracks were deep, and the snow hadn't quite filled them. I hadn't passed a sled or a team on the way, so they may have heard me coming and hidden. I reported the case to headquarters and asked to be assigned to it. Inspector Grayson gave me my instructions. Oh, uh, Sergeant, I'm sending a man with you on this case. He's Corporal Terry. Just been transferred here from Montreal. You've met him, haven't you? I met him this morning, sir. Jim Terry's a good man, but this is his first trip north. Knowing the North the way you do, Sergeant, I can't think of a better way for him to learn than going on a case with you. Well, thank you, sir. We have a very accurate description of these men who robbed the bank. You can't miss Hank Sims, as he calls himself, with that scar on his face. The man who's with him has two fingers missing on his left hand. His name is Tim Johnson. I'm sure they must have left town by the trail that I came in on, sir. That's very possible, Sergeant. I think you and Corporal Terry had better try that direction. Perhaps you can pick up some information at trading posts or from trappers along the way. At least it's a place to start. Remember, they have a heavy load, Sergeant. You won't be able to travel very fast. I was glad to have young Corporal Terry with me. We seldom travel alone at this time of year because the temperature is liable to drop to 50 or 60 below zero. And it's very dangerous to be alone on the trail when that happens. Corporal Terry's initiation to the ways of the North Country wasn't easy. First day we were out, the temperature fell to 65 below zero. So we holed up in the trapper's cabin for a day or two. But the men we were after didn't dare to stop. They had a heavy load on their sled and didn't want to be seen by anybody. Hank Sims and his partner Tim Johnson were mushing along the trail that led along a creek when the temperature dropped. Tim wasn't used to the north. Hank, we got to stop and build a fire. This cold is eating right into my bones. Yeah, we can't stop. This ain't the time to go soft. They'll have a mounty on our trail by this time, sure. But my foot's numb. Keep moving. If you stop, you'll freeze. Uh-oh. My foot. Hank, wait. Oh, oh there. Hank, my foot broke through. It's wet. Oh, you fool. I told you to watch out for spots like that on this creek. I get that boot off right away. Yeah. How can there be water when it's so cold? This creek is fed by springs. The snow and ice freezes over the top, but there's a pool of water under it. I told you to watch out. 
Now get a fire belt. Hey, my, my hand, my fingers are numb. I can't open these laces. You should have cut them open. Your hand is frozen. Don't you know you can't take off a mitten in this temperature? Oh, why did I bring you with me, you stupid fool? Hey, my foot, there ain't no feeling in it. I, I can't walk. By the time I build a fire and get your foot fixed, we'll lose hours of time. Maybe I could ride on the sled. Maybe we could like it. You got it. too big a load now. You think we're going to drop off supplies so you can ride your crazy? But, Hank, my foot's froze solid. It's like a piece of ice. I ain't going to lose time just because you're a fool. I told you to be careful. Hank, Hank, don't leave me. I, I can't walk. Mercy! 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 Hank, come back. Don't leave me. Hank! Hank! Two days later, Corporal Terry and I were mushing along that same creek. We weren't at all sure that we were on the trail of the thieves, but I was heading for a trading post where I hoped Hank might have stopped. All of a sudden, King barked up ahead of the team. Oh, how are you, hostage? Something wrong, Sergeant? Yes, Corporal. Look there, beside the creek. You mean that white figure? It's like a snowman. It's a man covered with snow. Come on. Look out, Terry. Go around that place. That's one of those traps I was telling you about. There's a spring under the ice right there. Got to watch where I was going. Yes, King. It's a man, all right. Why, look. He froze to death setting up. They were fools to try and travel at low temperature. They didn't know the country too well. Sergeant, do you think he's one of the men we're after? Yes. Now we know we're on the right trail. Look here, Corporal. His left hand, the one without the mitten. Two fingers are missing. But the other one, the other man, uh, Hank. Why didn't he take him on a sled or something? Well... You see this foot? Has ice all over it, like an icy boot. Tim probably stepped into a hole, and Hank didn't want to waste any precious time saving him. But to leave him like this, to freeze. I know, we know what kind of a man we're after. But he's left a clear trail in the snow. Yeah, but look, it's beginning to snow. Big flights, too. This trail will be covered in less than an hour. At least we know what territory he's in, Sergeant. We covered Tim's body with branches and went on. The temperature was higher, but the snowfall was very heavy, and we lost a lot of time breaking the trail. Complete darkness had fallen, and we were about five miles past the trading post, and I headed for the lights of the Cranston cabin. The Cransons were friends of mine. The Cransons will put us up tonight, Corporal. They're a nice family. You'll like them. A family, you say? You mean a wife, maybe children? Yes, a little girl. Her name's Jane, and she's about ten years old. Why would a man bring a wife and child way out here in the wilderness? Jim makes a good living trapping in winter, and he takes a lot of gold out of the creek in summer. He'll have enough to retire soon and go back to civilization. Oh, uh, they must have heard us coming. There's Jim now. Who is it? It's Preston, Jim. Working. Hello, you Well, Sergeant... I'm sure glad to see you. This is Corporal Terry, Jim Cranston. Hey, hello, Corporal. Can you put us up for the night? I sure can. Good. Molly has supper ready, too. Come on in. I'll take care of the dog, Sergeant. You go on in. Well, thanks, Corporal. Give them a lot of food. They've had a tough day. I'll take King in with me. Come on, boy. Oh, Molly. It's Sergeant Preston. Hello, Molly. Sergeant, how are you? Sergeant Preston. Oh, goody. Hello, Jane. How's my best girl? Oh, Sergeant, I'm so glad you came. I've got something to show you. Look, over here by the stove. Jane, give the sergeant time to take his park off. Oh, he can do it later, Mommy. Look, I got a new puppy. Oh, oh 
King won't hurt him, will he? No. Go on back, King. Why, he's a beautiful pup. Would you want to hold him? Come on, Frisky. Oh, he's nice. But, great Scott, look at that stomach. <laughs> he's swollen up like a balloon. Jane fed him too much. Oh. Jim and I went to the trading post this afternoon. We got back just a little while ago, and Jane had just finished overfeeding I him. See. I thought he must be very hungry because he ate half of one of my moccasins. So I gave him all he could hold. He sure can hold a lot, too. Well, pups are little gluttons, Jane. They like to eat. But getting all they can hold isn't too good for them. He swells up like that after all his meals. So would you if you ate the way he does. <laughs> well, he'll get skinny again. He always does. I never saw anything get so fat and skinny so fast. <laughs> Put the puppy on the floor, Sergeant, and take your park off. There you go, Frisky. I'll be nice to him, King. Jane, you see that they make friends with each other. I will. Oh, look at Frisky. He's so afraid of King. He's lying on his back and waving his feet in the air. Uh, let me Come take on. your things, Sergeant. Oh, uh, thanks, Jen. Make yourself comfortable beside the fire. Thanks, I will. Dog's all right for the night. Oh, Molly, this is Corporal Terry, Mrs. Cranston. How do you do? How do you do, Mrs. Cranston? Jim will take your park, Corporal. Just sit down and get warm. Oh, thanks. I'll have supper ready in no time. Yeah, Jim. Oh, this fire certainly feels good. Are you boys up here for any special reason? We're trailing a bank robber, Jim. He got away with a fortune in gold. You haven't seen anything of a man with a scar on his face and a black beard, have you? Well, a couple of days ago, right after that coal spell we had, I saw a man with a six-dog team. Oh? I was coming home from my trap line. He crossed the trail just as I was coming to it. I yelled at him, thinking he might be someone I knew. But he didn't stop. He just waved and kept right on going. Was he packing a heavy load? He sure was. His dogs were having a rough time breaking the trail. Sounds like our man. The time would be about right, too. He was headed towards the mountains. He may hide out somewhere around here for a while. If I were you, Jim, I'd keep Jane close to the house for a few days. It's lonely around here. I'll do that, Sergeant. By a streak of good fortune, we picked up Hank's trail again the next day. My team was fresh, and we made excellent time over the hard snow crust. That night, we camped out and got an early start the following morning. The mountains loomed close now. It was noon when we came upon a campsite. Working! Oh, this looks like the place Hank slept last night, Terry. You think we're that close on his heels? Yes, he's lost time somewhere. Of course, he hasn't given his dogs much rest, and they're pulling a lot of weight. We can go about twice as fast. How do you suppose he figures to get up that mountain trail with a tired team? I think that's where we'll catch him, Corporal. Unless he outsmarts us some way. If he once gets through those mountains, he might be able to make the border. He's not going to get through those mountains. Come on. On We had no trouble following Hank's trail then. The wind had blown the loose snow away and left a hard-packed crust. But here and there, Hank's sled had made an imprint. And now and then we saw footprints where the snow was protected from the wind. There was very little daylight left when we approached the mountains. The trail led up like a great curved snake and jagged rocks hung over it. Suddenly, there was a gunshot. I heard the whine of a bullet past my head and a dull plop as it hit the snow. I shouted at the dogs. Okay, hold your husband. Get down, Terry, behind the sled, quick. Say, that was close. I hear, King. Good fella. Down, boy. Hank must have seen us coming. He's up on that mountain trail to the left, behind those rocks. He's probably been watching for us. There. I saw him that time. He couldn't wait any longer. It's getting dark. 
Hope he doesn't shoot the dogs. Guess we were closer to him than we thought we were. Wish we had more shelter. Maybe I can get a bead on him. That worked from this side. It's hard to see him in that shadow. Sergeant, look. Up above him. Those rocks. Those shots started an avalanche. We're all right. We're not in this path. I never saw anything like that in my life. Looked as if half a mountain fell on him. I'm afraid that's the end of Hank. He's buried under tons of ice and rock. And I'm afraid that's the end of the bank's gold, too. It's buried with him. But can a shot start an avalanche like that? Oh, yes. The rocks get loaded with ice and snow, and any slight jar can start them down. And once started, they take everything in their path. It was the most horrible thing I ever saw. Glad we weren't any closer. I think it's safe to go over there now. Come on, Terry. Let's see what we can find. All right, Sergeant. Hard to believe a shot can do that. Of course, our task was a hopeless one. We couldn't even get near the spot where Hank had last been seen. There were tons of ice and rocks covering the trail, and Hank was buried far beneath them. We camped at the base of the mountain that night and started back the following day. I decided to stop on the way home to tell the Cransons that they no longer had to worry about a criminal in that vicinity. It was about noon, two days later, when we arrived at their cabin. Walking! We're back sooner than I thought we'd be, Molly. Come on in. Jim and Jane aren't here, but they will be soon. Sit down and take your coats off while I make some hot tea. Thanks. I could sure use some. Did you get the man you were after? Not exactly, but he won't bother anyone anymore. He's dead. Dead? Oh, dear. He got caught in an avalanche right in front of us. It buried him and all the gold he stole. Won't they be able to recover it? I'm afraid not. Well, at least the country's rid of a thief and a murderer. When I think of him leaving that man to freeze, it's worth all the money to be rid of him. The bank won't be too happy about it, I'm afraid. What'd you say Jim was? He's out with Jane looking for Frisky. Pup's been gone for a day and a night, and Jane's almost frantic. Oh, Sergeant Preston, I'm so glad you came back. You and King will find Frisky. I know you will. Tell me about it, Jane. Jane, dear, Sergeant Preston can't waste time hunting for puppies. He's on duty. Oh, but I love Frisky. He's the only thing that's all mine. And, and if I don't find him, I'll just die, that's all. Now, Jane, dear, don't cry. Of course we'll help you find your pup. You, you will? Oh, Sergeant, I just knew you would. Really, Sergeant, it's too much to ask you to do this. It will take too much time. Jane, dear, you can't... Now, Molly, after all, Jane's a citizen. She lost her puppy, and she has a right to ask the law to help her get it back. What do you say, Corporal Terry? I agree with you. You see, Molly? Oh, thank you. I knew you'd know how I felt, because you love King so much. Now, tell me about Frisky. When did he disappear? Well, it was yesterday morning. He ran away from me. I couldn't go after him, because Mother made me promise not to go away from the house. I'm so afraid he got caught in a trap or something. Daddy's still looking for him. But I thought I heard King barking, so I came back to the house. There's Daddy now. Daddy, did you find him? No, Jane. Hello, Sergeant. Hello, Jim. All right, Terry. That's fine. Did you lose track of the robber you were chasing? No, we got him, but I'd better tell you about it later, Jim. Sergeant Press and Corporal Terry are going to help us find Frisky. Well, I'm afraid it's hopeless, Jane. I've looked pretty thoroughly. Didn't he leave any tracks? 
Well, there was some leading away from the cabin where the snow was loose, but they end over here a ways. The snow crest is hard, the wind blew the loose snow away. He was a light, he didn't leave any tracks on the crest. Well, at least you know what direction he took. Well, he was a strong pup. I'm afraid he wandered a long way off. Maybe got caught in a trap. Or oh. Wolf may have got him. Oh, Daddy, no. I depend. No, don't worry, Jane. Maybe King can help us find him. Oh, King knows if they got to be good friends when you stayed here that night. Well, this is too much to ask of you, Sergeant. You lose too much time. <laughs> After being on a manhunt, <laughs> this seems rather foolish. Not at all, Jim. Frisky means more to Jane than that gold does to the bank. I know how I'd feel if King were missing. Oh, can we start looking right now? Well, first of all, we have to let King know what we're looking for, dear. Uh, have you anything here that smells like Frisky so that King can get the scent? Oh, dear. I brushed Frisky so much and kept him so clean that he didn't smell at all. Well, uh, well, that's not what I mean, Jane. You see, dogs can smell things that humans can't. Everything has some sort of scent, and a dog's nose is very keen. He depends on that more than he does his eyes. Uh, Frisky's blanket is in his box. Would that do, Sergeant? Well, that'll be fine, Molly. I'll let King smell that, and we'll find Frisky if he's still alive. I'll get it, Sergeant. I just know King will find Frisky. I've trained King to find things by giving him the scent and telling him to search. We found a lot of people that way by letting him smell a garment they've worn. Well, we took Frisky's blanket with us and followed the tracks he'd left. They went north and ended, as Jim said, where the snow crust was hard and shiny. I let King smell the blanket, and from there on, he took over. We crisscrossed back and forth for a time, and then a light wind came up from the north. Suddenly, King sniffed the air, whined, and started off in a straight line. We were almost a mile from the cabin, but little Jane struggled along with us. King would wait for us and continue straight ahead. All right, King, we're coming. Oh, King knows where Frisky is, Sergeant. He seems to be after something, Jane. Jane, dear, uh, aren't you tired? Why don't you wait here for us? I'm not tired, Daddy. Sergeant, King seems to have found something. He's stopping beside that big rock. I see King, but I don't see any sign of Frisky. Maybe he found a rabbit or something. Oh, King knows what he's looking for. Oh, I hope it's Frisky. There's a pile of small rocks piled up against that big one. What is it, fella? He's scratching at those rocks. Looking through that crack between them. Listen. Frisky, is that you? Oh, it is. It's Frisky. Let's move these rocks and get him out of there. Come on, Terry. I'll help you. Let's see how he got in here. This one will do it. Ah, here he is. Oh, oh Frisky. I'm so glad to get you back. Look at him. How fatty is that stomach after being in there for two days? Wait a minute. Come on, boys. Help me move some more of these rocks. Good, sure. I'll get this one here. Yeah, that does it. There's something in that hole in the side of the big rock. Uh, what is it? There's something. Well, it's like a dried fish ripped open. And there's more food in there, I think. Wait, I'll get it. This must be somebody's cache. What's a cache, Daddy? Well, it's a place where someone hides food to use later. He comes back from a trip along the same route. There's more than food in this one. Look at this, Jim. It's a bag. It's a bag of gold. The bag belongs to the bank in Dawson. Corporal? I think this gold was hidden here by Hank Sims. You mean the man you were chasing? That's right. He hid the gold here along with a lot of supplies. And that gave him a light load to carry. And he planned to lead us off into the mountains where he could ambush us. And he'd come back, pick up the gold and supplies. Or maybe he thought he'd get over the border. 
and come back after we'd stopped chasing him. You see, uh, he couldn't have made it with a heavy load of gold. And uh, now you can take the gold back to the bank. Yes, thanks to Frisky. But how did Frisky get in there? And why didn't he come out the same way and come home? Well, Jane, I think Frisky went exploring. He must have smelled the food in here with the gold, squeezed to a crack between the rocks. But after he ate all he could, his stomach was too big to get out again, so he probably just lay down and went to sleep. But he always gets thin when he hasn't eaten for a while. But when he's thin, dear, he's hungry. So when he woke up, he filled up again and couldn't get out. Well, come on, Gorgo. Let's get the rest of the gold out of here. <laughs> that pup is sure a little glutton. Oh, but I love him. And I love King, too. <laughs> so, Tommy... That's how we got the gold back for the bank. Some of it was your father's, I think. Gee, Sergeant, and that was swell. I hope I can train my pup the way you did King. Oh, it isn't hard if you're patient. We're sure lucky that you thought the pup was just as important to find as gold. What well, was important, Tommy, a dog is a good friend. And a faithful friend is much more important than gold. Isn't it, King? <laughs> Challenge of the Yukon, a copyrighted feature, is brought to you each week at this time, and all characters, names, and incidents used are fictitious. Listen again next week to another exciting adventure during the days of the gold rush. L. Prow speaking. This program came to you from Detroit. We're pretty sure it was July 3rd, 1947, when that episode, The Puppy, was broadcast by the series Challenge of the Yukon. It came to you tonight from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. Our Gunsmoke episode tonight is the 200th in the series... Appropriately enough, it's a script by John Meston, the writer who did the most to establish the quality and characters of the show. And he provided us with a real mystery in the story called Legal Revenge from February 5th, 1956, CBS and the series Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. (laughs) 
Sam? Kitty, what do you have? Uh, I'm going out to Delmonico's for something to eat. If Marshal Dillon comes in, tell him to wait, will you? I'll send him on to Delmonico's. No, he's to wait here. Doc who's trying to find him. Oh. You look tired, Sam. I ought to. I've been tending bar for 12 hours steady. Well, what happened to the help you hired last night? You had the wrong idea, Kitty. Huh? I'm in business to sell whiskey, not give it away to anybody who needs a drink and can't pay for it. <laughs> Is that what he was doing? Was like caught him at it. Ah, <laughs> uh, hello, Kitty. Sam. Oh, Marshal. Matt, you're to stay right here at the bar. What? I promised Doc if you came in, I'd keep you here. He's been looking all over town for you. Oh, I thought Doc was delivering a baby down on Salt Creek. Well, he got back about a half hour ago. Oh, what does he want me for? It's about some trouble with a man and his wife called Tebbs. Tebbs? Well, not where he delivered the baby. This was in a sod hut about a mile above the crossing. Oh, well, well what about him? Here he comes. He'll tell you. Here he is, Doc. Oh, fine. So you're a good girl, kiddies. Yes, you are. You're a good girl. I might never have found him. What's all this about these Tebbs people, Doc? Well, they're having trouble, Matt. Oh, what kind of trouble? Well, I stopped by to say hello and get acquainted and... Well, you know. Oh, sure. <laughs> but the woman, she didn't act like she wanted anybody around. And then I heard the man yell at me from inside. She tried to stop me, but I went in anyways. He was lying there in the bed, Matt, with a bad knife wound in his leg. Oh? Yes. It's festered and it's given him a fever, and I don't think he can walk with it. Uh, did he say what happened? Well, he claimed it was an accident, but he was holding a six-gun under that blanket. Well, what for? For his wife. He's scared to death of her. I think she knifed him, and I think she's waiting for a chance to finish him off. <laughs> you better get down there, Matt. Maybe too late already. the Tebbs place, all right, Mr. Dillon? That's the way Doc described it, all right, Joseph. Including the wife out there hoeing in the dirt. She's letting on she don't see us. Yeah. I didn't expect we'd be very welcome here. Just wait till she finds out you're a marshal. And I'm not going to tell her, Chester. Not right off, anyway. Hello, ma'am. Hello. Uh... We were looking for a drink of water. Crick's over yonder. Yeah, but you got a well here. Water's no better than the crick. Okay, we'll use the crick. But, uh, first I'd like to talk to your husband. My husband? What about? Oh, I just, uh, I wanted to get acquainted. He ain't here. No. Oh. Well, we go get a drink, and then we'll come back and wait for it. No. Who are you talking to, Corey? Who 
who's out there. Nobody. Now you stay quiet. He's feeling poorly, mister. I don't want nobody bothering him. Well, we won't bother him. You stay out of there. Well, then I'm coming too. You better wait outside, Justin. Yes, sir. That hut can't hold more than three people anyway. Hello. Oh, I knew I heard somebody. Your wife says that you're sick, Ted. I told you to leave him alone. I told you not to be troubling him. Well, I'm only being neighborly, ma'am. If he's sick, maybe I can help. So you're a neighbor, mister? Well, my partner and I are planning a homestead nearby. As soon as we can decide on a good piece of land. Now, you get it staked out, then you'll come see us, mister. Everything will be fine, then. Now, Flory, don't be that way. Me being sick and her having to do all the chores makes you kind of edgy, mister. And being up nights, it's what's hardest on her. I ain't complaining. Yeah, I know, Flory, but I can tell. Mister, I got an idea. Said you wanted to help. Uh, sure, sure, anything I can do. You willing to sit up with me tonight? No, Ben. Ah, you need some rest, Flory. You see, I got a... I got a fever, mister. I get to tossing them asleep. I throw off a blanket, all like that. You don't look like you've been sleeping at all. Huh. Will you do it, mister? Sit up with me? No. No, he ain't gonna sit up with you. Oh, why not, ma'am? I, I don't mind. Because I ain't gonna sleep in here with no stranger about, that's why. Oh. Well, I didn't think she would. Look, uh, I'll tell you what. I'll spend the night on the ground outside, if you don't mind. We do mind. Rory, you ain't acting like a wife. You ain't acting like a wife at all. You can stay, mister. Now, oh, fine, good. Wait a minute, mister. Yeah, what? I was just wondering if maybe tomorrow you'd be willing I ought to get into Dodge and see the dock. There's a wagon outside. No, you don't. Oh, shut up. Well, sure, we'll take you in, mister. We'll be glad to. him in the dodge tomorrow, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, we better. But why don't she want him to go? Well, I guess Doc was right, Chester. She put a knife in him, and now she's trying to finish him off. Well, if he's got a six-gun under his blanket, why don't he just shoot her? That hood take care of him, feed him. He's getting more fever every day, and he can hardly walk anyway. Well, he sure can't last much longer. With him staying awake, trying to keep an eye on her all the time. Yeah. Chester, I think I'm going to go in there and tell him who I am and load him into a wagon tonight. This has gone on long enough. I reckon you better, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. Where's your wife? She went around back, mister. Look, uh, Tebbs. Hmm? I'm going to take you into Dodge tonight. You are? 
Oh, that'll be fine. Oh, except for Florida. You want to tell me what's going on here? What do you mean? I'm not a homesteader, Tebbs. I'm a U.S. Marshal. Huh? That's right. And I'm going to take you into Dodge, Flory or no Flory. You need sleep and you need care. Oh, well... Now, you can tell me your story when you want to. No. There's no story. I just got hurt a little, is all. Look here, Marshal. You got to understand, Flory. She don't... She, she don't mean what she says. She... Gets all riled up over nothing. Well, you know how women are. What are you trying to say, Tibbs? Well, I, I'm I'm fine right here. And Flory, she's a good nurse, Marshal. You mean you don't want to go to Dodge? No, oh, shucks, I'll be up and around in a couple of days. Don't you worry about me. All right, but I'll be back. Chester. Chester. Get your hands up and turn around, Marshal. Oh, she's got a shotgun, Mr. Dillon. And I'll use it, too. She was listening at the window. Now my hands are up, Flory. I'm taking your gun. She got my gun, too, Mr. Dillon. You're making a bad mistake, Flory. I won't have you nor nobody else meddling where you don't belong. Now get your horses and ride out of here. All right, but we'll be back. I'm going to be setting right by that door, Marshal. First thing I see or hear gets a load of buckshot. It won't be us, Flory, but we'll be close enough to hear if you do shoot somebody. I, I couldn't help it, Mr. Dillon. She come ooching around the side of the hut, and I didn't even see that cussed shotgun until it was too late. Yeah, neither did I. What are we going to do? Well, there's nothing we can do tonight. But tomorrow in the daylight, we got our rifles. We'll think up some tricks for her. She must be inside the hut, Chester. Well, I hope she don't come charging out of there with that shotgun, Blaze. <laughs> it would be a bad way to start the day, wouldn't it? I can't think of none worse, especially on an empty stomach. Yeah. Now, there she is. Hmm? Now, wait a minute. It's all right. She isn't armed. Not over here, Marshal. Now, what's she up to? Yeah, it's hard to say with a woman like that. I thought you'd be back this morning. Yes, and I told you we wouldn't. We're going to take your husband into Dodge, ma'am. You're too late, Marshal. Too late? He died during the night. What? It was too much for his heart. He always did have a weak heart. 
Where is he, Florrie? Lying there inside, Marshal. Why? Don't you believe me? I believe you, but I want to have a look at him. What for? I got him all wrapped up in his blanket, ready for burying. I'll go dig a grave for him if you want to help so much. All right, we'll dig a grave after I've seen him. You got no respect for the dead, Marshal? It's the living that bothers me right now, Florrie. Better than a coyote, Marshal. You don't have to watch. Oh, go ahead. I don't care. I'll unbutton his shirt here. All right, what did you use, Florian? Use? For what? I might have known he couldn't stay awake forever. He fell asleep and you stabbed him in the heart with a needle or something. That doesn't show much, does it? All right, I'll tell you. Don't matter none anyway. I I killed him. Why would you want to kill your husband, Flora? My husband? He wasn't my husband. He killed my husband, Marshal. We never seen him before. He rode by here and started trouble. Over me it was. My husband pulled a knife, but but he shot him. And I swore I'd kill him for it, and I did. Why didn't you explain all this to Doc Adams when he was out here? Or to me last night? And let you take him and hang him? I had to kill him myself, Marshal. It's a promise I made my husband while he was dying. And I'm going to have to arrest you. You can't do nothing to me for this. You murdered a man, Florrie. You're wrong, Marshal. You just admitted it. Well, I ain't doing no more talking. You take care of him and we'll go into Dodge. But I won't be in jail long. You'll see. Good morning, Chester. Good morning, Mr. Dillon. What you got there? That's a mail. Oh, did you pick it up? Yeah, I picked it up. I was down there anyway. How's Florrie? She ain't said a word. Go get her, will you? Go get What for? She was right, Chester. I can't keep her in jail. But, Mr. Dillon, we just Go can't get her, will you? Yes, sir. of a jail you got, Marshal. Well, it's not strong enough to hold you. Of course it ain't. Florrie, the man you killed, you told me you've never seen him before, huh? I never had. What was his name? George Bassett. What else did you know about him? He was wanted, dead or alive. He was wanted? I got a circular on him in the mail, Chester. It's there on my desk. A circular... Well, forevermore. How did you know he was wanted, Florrie? He said so. Now, that's hard to believe. Now, he told me. 
when he was bothering me before he killed my husband. He said one more wouldn't matter. I guess he planned to kill me, too, later. Only he hadn't figured on getting cut up, and he needed me after that. Yeah. Now, why didn't you tell me this out there, Florrie? I didn't think you'd believe me, Marshal. Yeah, well, maybe you were right. I never heard of George Bassett before. You heard of him now? Yeah. Uh, there's going to be some reward money coming, Florrie. Marshal. Yeah, what? You say it. Say what, Florrie? Oh, please. Now, oh. that you don't want the money, that you wouldn't take it. Thank you, Marshal. Thank you for saying it right. I, I feel some cleaner for that. Goodbye. Goodbye, Flory. William Conrad. You know, on the frontier, almost anybody who had a few dollars could open a bank of his own. And by the same token, anybody who had a gun could try to rob it. And next week, a man does. And that was the West. Good night. Gunsmoke, produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Helen Cleave, Lawrence Dobkin, and Stacey Harris. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Gunsmoke, the episode called Legal Revenge, from the winter of 1956 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer, and Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are the audio engineers. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org. Our website is thebigbroadcast.org. And please visit us on Facebook, The Big Broadcast, and Instagram, Big Broadcast WAMU. One of the real champions of using sound to tell stories and to get laughs was the endlessly imaginative Stan Freeberg. He was born on this date, August 7th, in 1926, precisely the right time for his own edgy, hip sense of humor, but, alas, just a tiny bit too late for a long career in network radio. His own series, The Stan Freeberg Show, ran for only 15 episodes in 1957, so we can't play him so frequently as we'd like, but we're going to hear one of those 15 later tonight. And now, we're going to play a couple of his parodies of radio, recordings he made for Capitol Records in the 1950s. 
These singles really sold, by the way, and they made it to the Billboard chart of best-selling records. Of the two we're going to hear right now, the second one was a giant hit, making it to number one in the fall of 1953. It's the famous parody of Dragnet, St. George and the Dragonnet, performed by Dawes Butler, June Foray, and Mr. Freeberg himself. First, though, we'll hear his brilliant send-up of radio soap operas performed entirely by Mr. Freeberg and released on February 8, 1951. It's called John and Marcia. John! Marcia! John! Marcia! John? Uh, Marcia. John! Marcia? John! Marcia? Marcia, 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 John, 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 Marcia, John, Marcia. legend you are about to hear is true. Only the needle should be changed to protect the record. This is the countryside. My name is St. George. I'm a knight. Saturday, July 10th, 8.05 p.m. I was working out of the castle on the night watch when a call came in from the chief. A dragon had been devouring maidens. Homicide. My job. Slay him. Call me, Chief. Yeah, it's the dragon again, devouring maidens. The king's daughter maybe next. Mm-hmm. You got a lead? Uh, nothing much to go on. Said you take that forty-five automatic into the lab to have him check on it? Yeah, you were right. I was right? 
Yeah, it was a gun. 8.22 p.m. I talked to one of the maidens who had almost been devoured. Could I talk to you, ma'am? Who are you? I'm St. George, ma'am. Homicide, ma'am. I want to ask you a few questions, ma'am. I understand you were almost devoured by the ma'am. Is that right, dragon? It was terrible. He breathed fire on me. He burned me already. How can I be sure of that, ma'am? Believe me, I got it straight from the dragon's mouth. 11.45 p.m. I rode over the King's Highway. I saw a man. Stopped to talk to him. Pardon me, sir. Could I talk to you for just a minute, sir? Sure, I don't mind. What do you do for a living? I'm a knave. Didn't they pick you up on a 903 last year for stealing tarts? Yeah. So what, do you want to make a federal case out of it? No, sir. We heard there was a dragon operating in this neighborhood. We just want to know if you've seen him. Sure, I've seen him. Mm-hmm. Could you describe him for me? What's to describe? You see one dragon, you've seen them all. Would you try and remember, sir, just for the record? We just want to get the facts, sir. Well, he was, you know, he had orange polka dots. Yes, sir. Purple feet, breathing fire and smoke. Mm-hmm. And one big bloodshot eye right in the middle of his forehead and, uh, like that. Notice anything unusual about him? No, he's just a run-the-mill dragon, you know. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir, you can go now. Hey, by the way, how are you going to catch him? I thought you'd never ask. A dragon net. 3.05 p.m. I was riding back into the courtyard to make my report to the lab. Then it happened. It was a dragon. Hey, I'm the fire-breathing dragon. You must be St. George, right? Yes, sir. I see you got one of them new 45 caliber swords. That's about the size of it. <laughs> You'd slay me. That's what I wanted to talk to you about. What do you mean? I'm taking it in a 502. You figure it out. What's the charge? Devouring maidens out of season. Out of season? You never pinned that rap on me? Do you hear me, cop? Yeah, I hear you. I got you in a 412, too. A 412? What's a 412? Overacting. Let's go. On September the 5th, the dragon was tried and convicted. His fire was put out and his maiden devouring license revoked. Maiden devouring out of season is punishable by a term of not less than 50 or more than 300 years. With Dawes Butler and June Foray, Stan Freeberg performed his classic St. George and the Dragon Net, released by Capitol Records in September of 1953. How could we not use it as the lead-in to tonight's Dragnet episode here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5? I'm Murray Horwitz. That Dragnet episode is one called The Big Fake, and it comes from June 1st, 1950, NBC, and the series, Dragnet. The story you're about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to personnel division. A resident of your city files a report of robbery and assault. The suspect, a rookie police officer. Your job, arresting. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. 
For the next 30 minutes, transcribed in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Wednesday, April 9th. It was foggy in Los Angeles. We were working a day watch out of personnel. My partner's Ben Romero, the boss's deputy chief Holman, commander BIA. My name's Friday. We're on the way over from the city hall, and it was 5.25 p.m. when we got to Central Division. The assembly room. Yeah, how's the wife? See him, Joe? Yeah, that looks like him over there. Hi. You Russell Clark? Yeah, that's right. Friday and Romero personnel. All right. Lieutenant Drummond over at BIA would like to talk to you. All right. When do you want to see me? Right now. Okay. All right, we're looking for cap. Okay, let's go. What do they want to see me about, you know? Drummond will tell you. Okay. How long you been on the job, Clark? About two and a half months. How do you like it? Oh, I like it fine. Wife doesn't think much of it. She wanted me to stay at my old job. What was that? Selling insurance. Likes to have me home nights. Doesn't like to be alone, especially now. Yeah? Well, she's expecting you in a couple of months. You're not there yet. Yeah. That's close, man. Hey, I uh, put in a request for day work. You think that's why personnel wants to see me? I don't know. I don't think so. Boy, I'd sure like to get that day watch. Yeah. Is that the way you fellas started? I did, yeah. You started in traffic, didn't you, Ben? Yeah, uh-huh. Had nine months, Ellen. Go ahead, Clark. No, thanks. I have to be on the job at six. Think it's going to take very long? I don't know. Hi, Friday. Hi. Right in, Lieutenant. Waiting. Listen, Al Coleman. Lieutenant? Yeah, come in. This is Officer Clark, Lieutenant Drummond. How do you do, sir? Oh, hey, Clark. Sit down. Thanks. A couple of questions for you. Yes, sir. You were on special duty at the Olympic Auditorium last night, is that right? Yes, sir, for the fights. Anything unusual happened out there last night? Mm. Well, it wasn't very important, Lieutenant. Mm. After the fights, a drunk fell down the stairs on the way out of the auditorium, broke his arm. I took him to Georgia Street, and they took care of the arm, and I drove him home. He was pretty drunk. Why didn't you book the man? I didn't think it was necessary. How long have you been with the department, Clark? Two and a half months, sir. Didn't you know he should have been booked for violation of 4127A LAMC? Well, the man was in pretty bad shape, Lieutenant. Broken arm. I, I guess I didn't think the law was that strict. Law is there for a purpose. You decided to forget it, now you're in a mess. Right up to your neck. I don't understand. You remember the name of that drunk you took care of last night? Yes, sir. His name was Stacy. He lives out in West L.A. What's the matter, Lieutenant? That drunk, Mr. Stacy, wants to file a complaint against you. What for? He claims you took him back at the auditorium, beat him up, broke his arm, and robbed him of $128. He's crazy. He's lying. I didn't do that. Got his word against yours, Clark. Facts seem to favor him. But I can prove it. Well, there there was at least a couple of dozen people around. There there was a doctor, he can tell you. Maybe you better take it from the beginning, Clark. Exactly how did it happen? I was right after the fights. I was on duty in the lobby, and I saw a bunch of people crowding around the foot of the stairs. I went over to see what the trouble was, and they were looking at this man lying on the pavement. Stacy, a doctor, was examining him. This doctor, did he identify himself? Yeah. I asked for his identification. He, he showed it to me. Gave me a card. He was a doctor, all right. Yeah, go ahead. Well, he told me that he'd seen Stacy fall down the stairs coming out of the auditorium. Said that Stacy had broken his left arm. What'd you do then? 
Well, the doc said it'd be okay to move him, so I helped him into my car and took him down to Georgia Street. He was so drunk he could hardly stand up. The attendants at Georgia Street took care of his arm. Well, they can tell you all about this. Maybe, but they can't help you out as witnesses. You could have beaten up Stacy, robbed him, then taken him to Georgia Street. But I didn't, Lieutenant. I tell you that Stacy's lying. What'd you do when you left Georgia Street? Well, I drove into Central and told him what happened. I told the watch commander I was going to drive this Stacy home, and he warned me about it. Guess I should have known better, but... Well, I, I swear to you that Stacy's lying. You should have known better. Where'd you go after you left Central? Well, I drove him home. On the way, he said he was hungry, so I stopped. I bought him a sandwich and some black coffee. Kept telling me what a nag his wife was. Said he was afraid to go home. Go on. Well, when I got him to his place, his wife started chewing me out. I just said goodnight and left. That's it, huh? That's it. So help me, that's exactly what happened. Now, how about the doctor at the auditorium, the one who saw Stacy fall? Did you get his name and address? Well, no, no, Lieutenant, I didn't. I didn't think it was necessary. How about the crowd that was standing around? Did you spot anybody you know? No. No, no, I didn't. They're just a bunch of people coming out of the fights. Then you haven't got anyone to corroborate your story. But all those people saw it. There must have been a couple of dozen of them. What are their names? I, I don't know. All I know is I didn't beat him up and I didn't take his money. I tell you, the Stacy's lying. You could be lying. We got no proof either way. I'm not lying, Lieutenant. I didn't do it. We might believe you, Clark. That doesn't make any difference. If this man files a 211 against you, it's got to be settled in court. But I, I didn't do it. I, I tell you, I swear I did. In just a minute. Mike. Send him, Mr. and Mrs. Stacy, will you? You can hear the story the way we get it from Stacy and his wife. I'd like to hear it. I, I don't know why he's doing this. Tell me, I helped him all I could. Look, Jerry, there he is. That's the one. Yeah, that's him, Chief. Now, wait a minute, Mr. Stacy. What's this all about? Hold it, Clark. Mr. Stacy, would you repeat the same story you told us this morning, please? You know what I told you, Chief. You had the stenographer take it all down. It's the same thing. Like to have you repeat it in front of Officer Clark here. He's entitled to know what you're charging him with. A man like that's entitled to nothing. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Look, lady, your husband's lying. Don't call my husband a liar. You're not a policeman. You're a hoodlum. All right, wait a minute. I'd like to know what this city's coming to. Cops going around beating up private citizens. Who do we trust if we can't trust a policeman? Just a minute, please. No, no, Captain. You should have seen my husband when that officer brought him home last night. Arm all bandaged, his face all cut up. He was hurt so bad he could hardly stand up. He was too drunk to stand up, lady. Don't you get fresh with me. Man. All right, that's enough. This cop got hold of me as I was coming out of the fights. Took me in back of the auditorium. Told me if I didn't hand over my wallet, he'd book me on a drunk charge. Were you drunk, Stacy? I was not. Had a couple of beers, that's all. When I wouldn't give him my money, he beat me up. Broke my arm and took my wallet. How do men like you ever get on the police force? He figured he'd cover up, so he took me and had my arm fixed at the emergency hospital. Then he drove me home. Threatened me all the way. He said, you tell anybody about this and I'll get you. That's just what he said. I don't get it, Stacy. You know that story's a pack of lies. Why are you doing this to me? It's the truth. And I'm going to press charges and get my money back. $128. What have you done with it? We can take care of the questioning, Mrs. Stacy. I don't see you doing it. Make him tell. Where's our money? I haven't got it. Don't talk back to me. Mr. Stacy, you and your wife want to file a crime report at this time. We want to press charges. Romero? Yeah? Take Mr. and Mrs. Stacy down to the record bureau, have them make out a report for 211 and assault. Right. Get them this way, please. Now, listen. We're going to get action if we have to take this to the district attorney. We're not afraid of the publicity. We'll go to the newspaper if we don't get action. Yes, ma'am. What's it, Clark? They're lying. I can't, I can't prove it, but they're lying. Well, you can see the position it puts us in. If you're innocent, we'll do all we can. If you're guilty, we'll see you get everything that's coming to you. But they're lying. You know that. Not up to us. The court's going to have to decide. 
That's it. That's it. No, there's no other way, Clark. We got 4,500 men in the department. We don't claim they're all saints. Once in a while, a bad cop comes along and pulls a caper, and all of us get a black eye. This book of rules is the only protection we got against that. By failing to enforce the law, you violated your duty as a police officer. Got yourself in a real mess, Clark. Like anybody else, you get a fair trial. That mean I'm dropped from the force? Those people have filed a crime report. Draw suspension pending the outcome of the case. After that, if you're cleared, there'll be a hearing before the Board of Rights. Right through right now? You'll be booked for robbery and assault and held in county jail. The case will be presented to the district attorney tomorrow. What can I do? I'll have to have your badge. On the desk. Your gun? Yeah. ID card. Yeah. On the desk. Yeah. All right, Joe, that's it. Okay. Take him. Six p.m. Ben returned to the office, and together we took rookie police officer Russell Clark across the street to the Hall of Justice. At the county jail booking desk on the twelfth floor, he was booked on suspicion of two eleven P.C. and assault with intent to do great bodily harm. He was lodged in the cell block. Investigating charges against a police officer involves exactly the same procedure as cases where private citizens are concerned. Prove the suspect innocent or guilty. That's the job. If Clark was innocent, looked like there was only one way of proving it. That was somehow to find the unnamed doctor who was supposed to have seen Stacy fall down the auditorium stairs and then examined him afterward. If Clark was guilty, we had to find proof that his story about Stacy falling downstairs was a lie. Besides that, we had to find evidence that he beat up Stacy at the rear of the auditorium that night and that he robbed him of $128. Thursday, April 10th, Ben and I checked in for work at 7.45 a.m. and found a message from the jailer on the phone board. Clark wanted to see us right away. We met with him in the county jail interview room. How you doing? Not too bad. Don't let it sour you, huh? Sergeant, you really think I rolled that character? Come on, tell me the truth. We checked you out. Good family. You got a fine army record. No, we don't think you did it. I just can't understand why he picked me out. I tried to help him all I could. Then he walks in the next day with a frame story like that. You got any idea why Stacy would pull something like this on you? I don't know. I'm worried, Sergeant. Believe me, I, I, I can't afford to sit here missing my pay. We, we live pretty close to the budget with a baby coming. I'm worried about the wife. I just don't know what to do. Are you sure you told us everything about this that you remember? Well, that's the one reason I wanted to see you. I didn't sleep much last night. I kept trying to remember the name of that doctor. Yeah? Well, I remember once he did mention his name, and then when I asked for his identification, he showed me one of his cards. Any idea what his name was? Well, I'm not sure, but as I remembered, it was some kind of a Swedish or Norwegian name, something like Johnson, Tollison, you know, something with a son on the end of it. It's on that card. That doesn't narrow it down too much. Where is it going? Well, I think I put his card in one of the pockets of my other uniform shirt. That's why I called you. I wonder if you could check that for me. It's at home. Sure. Where do you live? Out on Norwich Road, 411. It's right near the Coliseum. 411. Yeah. All right. We'll check it out for you. Just ask the wife, will you? card should be in one of the pockets. Yeah, if you put it there. Ben and I left the interview room at the county jail and drove out to the home of Officer Clark on Norwich Road. We introduced ourselves to his wife and told her what we were after. 
Her eyes were red and looked like she'd been crying. She asked about her husband. We told her he was all right. They're making a terrible mistake, Sergeant. Russ never did anything crooked in his life. He didn't do it. I know he didn't. We'll do everything we can to straighten it out, Mrs. Lloyd. The court will have the final say. I knew Russ shouldn't have left his insurance job. I just knew it all this trouble. How about that shirt that your husband told us about, the one he wore that night at the auditorium? Oh, yes, his other uniform shirt. Mm-hmm. Can we see it, please? Oh, yes, certainly. It's right this way, back in bed. What's so important about the shirt, Sergeant? Your husband told us that there might be a card in one of the pockets. Might help clear up things. Well, it should be hanging up here in the closet. I always like to keep Russ's shirts on hangers. He keeps them much nicer looking. What's the matter? This morning I sent it to the cleaners. Clark's wife, Ben, and I drove down to a dry cleaning shop a few blocks away where Mrs. Clark had left the shirt. The counter girl there told us that the truck had already been by that morning and picked up the day's cleaning. It was a store rule to check all garments for contents. She had found nothing. We got the address of the main plant, the Great Northern Dry Cleaners, a place down on Factory Street. 10.15 a.m., we checked in at the main plant and explained to the manager what we were after. We gave him the tag number of her cleaning, and Mrs. Clark gave him the description of the shirt. We waited in the manager's office while he made a search for the dark blue wool police shirt. How about this one, lady? It's the only blue wool shirt picked up at your cleaners this morning. Yes, that's Russ's shirt. That pocket flap there, I mended it. I'll check the pockets for you. I had to pull it out of the tank. It's all wet. Anything? Yeah, in this pocket. Try the other one. Yeah? Look for yourself. Nothing. You are listening to Dragnet. Thursday, April 10th. Shortly after noon, the daily newspapers were on the streets, and the head on one of the top front page stories read, Rookie Cop Slugs Rob Citizen. Ben and I went back to the county jail and told Clark that we'd failed to find the card. He could give us no other lead that might help in clearing the case. During the next two days that followed, Ben and I ran down every possible lead, no matter how remote it was. We made a thorough check on Mr. and Mrs. Stacy. We double-checked back on Clark's record. For one full day, we did nothing but phone doctors in and around the city of Los Angeles. From a list of hundreds, we came across three doctors who had been present at the fights in Olympic Auditorium on the night Stacy claimed he was beaten up and robbed by Officer Clark. None of the three had seen a man tumble down the stairway leading from the balcony to the lobby. None of them had seen any accident or had been called on to help anyone professionally. Monday, April 14th, we met with Lieutenant Ralph Drummond. No go, huh? Thanks got us, Ralph. We can't figure. It's almost a fact Stacy's lying. Clark, what about him? Well, there's still nothing to show that he didn't do it. He had the opportunity, maybe he had a motive. He needs money, you know. Who doesn't? How much you get on Stacy? He and his wife run a secondhand furniture store in South Flower. It's a small business. Stacy's quite a gambler. He bets on the fights. Yeah? He checked around with some of the gang down at the auditorium. Stacy's well known down there. He laid some pretty heavy bets the night he claims Clark rolled him. How much? You got the dope there, Ben. How's it figure out? Well, he lost over $75 in small amounts. Added that to the fact that he was doing some partying. That might account for the 128 this missing. Stacy blew the roll, was afraid to tell his wife, so he cooked up the story against Clark. Yeah, sure. Maybe that could have been the way it happened. What do you got on the other side? Not much, Ralph. Couldn't dig up anything against Clark. I don't know. He doesn't seem like the type to pull something like that. Maybe not. You still can't prove he didn't do it. 
How about the papers? You've been plugging for witnesses? Yeah. Here's the ad. Had it running in personals for four days now. Oh, thanks. All those saw men fall down the stairway in the auditorium. Please call Michigan 521-875. No, he's on, sir. No. All the possible doctors in town have been checked out, too. How about the local medical magazines? Got an ad in there, Ralph. Nothing's happened. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing is sure. Something's got to happen. Newspapers are scorching the kid in the department along with him. Victim without a trial makes good reading in the tabloids. There's one thing I can't understand. If Clark's leveling and there was a doctor at the fights that might have looked at Stacy, then where's the doctor? We've had this thing noised all around town. Well, give it a little more time, he might turn up. I kind of like the Stacy angle. What do you mean? Well, suppose we get him in here. Think we could break him down into questioning? No, 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 I doubt that. We can't even get close to him. That wife of his and that lawyer, they're with him all the time. He's afraid to talk to us. Mm. Maybe if we pass the word to his wife, he'd been gambling. How far could we go on that? Well, she might believe us, she might not. You've seen what she's like. Yeah. I got an idea he sold her on a story, and she's tagging along to get the $128 back. It gives me an idea, Joe. One thing we might have missed. Yeah, what's that? We found out that Stacy did a little partying before we went to the fights at the auditorium that night, didn't we? Yeah, go ahead. We checked out a couple of the bars he was drinking at, but we figure he must have parted away at least 50 out of that $128. Mm-hmm. He didn't spend that much at the bars. Oh, well, sure. He probably hit a few other places, too. That's what I mean. That's still a lot of money to drink up alone. You figure a woman? Maybe. You got any reason to think Stacy plays around? Just one. Yeah? His wife. Monday, 1 p.m. Ben and I started a canvas of bars and small nightclubs in the general area around the Olympic Auditorium. We started with those where Stacy was a regular customer. We failed to turn up any leads. Either the bartenders refused to tell us or they had no knowledge of Stacy's running around with other women. We kept at it. Another day passed. Two days. Nothing. One of the newspapers started a campaign against the brutality of police officers. On Thursday, we got a tip from a bartender at a place out on Washington Street, the Brown Cow. He told us that he thought he saw a man answering Stacy's description in his bar a few nights before with a flashy blonde in her late 20s. He said he didn't know Stacy too well, but he knew the girl, and he knew the hotel where she stayed. Her name was Sandra Gay, an acrobatic specialty dancer at the Cheap Nightclub. We checked out her hotel, but she wasn't in. We left word for her to get in touch with us, and then we picked up a hamburger and some potato salad for lunch and checked back in at the office. How you doing, Coleman? I'm as good as you two. How you mean? Can't you smell a perfume? Hmm? It's off a blonde named Sandra Gay. She's waiting in the next room. Won't talk to anybody but you. Thanks. Come on, Ben. Didn't waste much time, did she? Perfume. Sure strong. Your name, Sandra Gay? Yes, I... You the fellas been looking for me? Drop by your hotel. We'd like to ask you a few questions. Sure, it's all right. This is my partner, Sergeant Romero. My name's Friday. How you doing? Hello. Romero. Kind of cute for a cop. What can I help you with? Do you know anybody by the name of Gerald Stacy, Miss Gay? Gerald? Yeah, I hate that name. Do you know any man who calls himself that? No. I think that's a terrible name for a man, Gerald. The man we have in mind is pretty short, stocky build, dark hair, and he wears steel-rimmed glasses. Yeah, where's he hang out? Place out in Washington, the brown cow. Supposed to have been seen with you. Gerald Stacy. Oh, yeah, I think I know what you mean. Furniture business and runs a place near the brown cow. That's right, you know him? Oh, Pop, sure I know him. We get together once in a while, he's a kick. Pretty big spender? Oh, he's got, yeah. 
Last time we went out, he was fine. He can kick it around when he wants to. <laughs> oh, Pops. When's the last time you were out with him, Miss Gay? Uh, maybe a week, two weeks ago. The Tuesday night, I think, yeah. Tuesday the 8th, is that about right? Yeah, it must have been. Why, was it all about? Did you spend most of the evening with him? No, I had to get back to the club, do my act. He went on to the fights over at Olympus. I get it. Personnel, Friday. Is this Sergeant Friday? Yes, that's right. This is Dr. Samuelson talking, Sergeant. I've been out of town. I just got back this morning. I saw the ad in the paper. Yes, sir? I was at the fights that night, Sergeant. What else do you want to know? Would you mind telling us, Doctor, did you see a man fall down one of the stairways to the lobby? Certainly. I was the one who examined him. Five p.m. Mr. and Mrs. Stacy were called to Lieutenant Drummond's office. Arrangements were made to have Officer Russell Clark brought over from his cell in county jail. At five fifteen, Ben and I checked into the lieutenant's office. Stacy and his wife were already there. Certainly proud of our police department, Chief. No whitewashing this time. You gave that fellow exactly what he had coming. Thanks. You sure you didn't make a mistake? I'm sure, Chief. That's the right man. You got him. Jerry, don't make mistakes on things like this, Inspector. How about our money, the 128? He tell you where he hid it? No, he hasn't. We're bringing Officer Clark in from county jail. Figure we try to crack him. That's right. Make him tell what he did with our money. Joe, will you have Officer Clark brought in? By the way. All right. There he is. Where's our money? What have you done with it? Just a minute, please. Stacy, are you sure Officer Clark here is the man who beat you up and robbed you? Of course he is. Dragged me behind the auditorium and almost beat me to death. Broke my arm, took all my money. $128, where is it? I haven't got your money. Joe, bring the doctor in. I understand. In here, doctor. All right. Mr. Stacy, you're a liar. This officer didn't break your arm. I saw you fall down a flight of stairs at that auditorium and break your own arm. I examined it. Jerry, who is this man? What about it, Stacy? He doesn't know what he's talking about. I never saw him before in my life. No, but I've seen you, Stacy. You were drunk. I saw you fall down those stairs. You're crazy. Joe, send Miss Gay in. All right. All right, Miss Gay. Okay, thanks. Very strong perfume. You recognize any of these people, Miss Gay? Hello, Pops. I don't know you. Don't you remember the perfume you give it to me? Who is this woman? Just a friend, honey. All right, Stacy. Now let's have it straight. It was all a mistake. I don't want to make trouble for anybody. It wasn't this cop's fault. I don't want to make any trouble. What about this woman? It was all a mistake. Believe you me. You took that money, Gerald. You spent it on her. Now, wait a minute. Causing all this trouble, squandering our money. After all I did for you, you're no good. This time I'm through. All right, Clark, let's go. Okay. Well, that's it. I don't know how to thank you, fellas. And doctor's the best friend you've got. Yeah. Yeah, I better call a wife she'll want to know. Friday, phone message for you here. Oh, thank you. From your wife, Clark. Yeah? She found that doctor's card. The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On September 2nd, trial was held in Municipal Court, Division 7, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Gerald Stacy was tried on charges of filing a false crime report. He was convicted under Section 5250 LAMC 
and served his term as prescribed by law. Officer Russell Clark was returned to duty with full back pay. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of Chief of Police W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all long cigarettes, has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. Hear your favorite Jack Birch tomorrow on NBC. The Big Fake, a Dragnet episode from the spring of 1950. You heard it here on The Big Broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, in HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. We're going to spend this hour celebrating the birthday of Stan Freeberg, one of the great artists of radio, and arguably the last great artist of American network radio. Mr. Freeberg, born on this date in 1926, passed away in 2015. But his legacy of comedy and sound is secure. His was the final network comedy series, The Stan Freeberg Show. Its star was already well-known to radio listeners, mostly because of the success of his comedy singles for Capitol Records, which, as we pointed out last hour, were big hits, so they were in the rotation of top 40 radio stations around the country. The Stan Freeberg Show was a summer replacement for Jack Benny in 1957, but Mr. Benny never returned to radio, and Mr. Freeberg's show failed to attract a sponsor, in part because its star refused to accept support from tobacco companies. All 15 episodes have survived, though, and we're going to hear one of the last ones now. It contains references to the radio and TV hosts Art Linkletter and Steve Allen, who used to interview audience members on the air, a la Fred Allen, the Mark C. Bloom chain of gas stations and tire stores in Los Angeles that used to give customers premium S&H green stamps with every purchase, the horror movie actor Boris Karloff, the canine film star, Rin Tin Tin, the song Tammy, that was a number one hit for Debbie Reynolds in 1957, and the accordion-playing band leader, Mr. A One and a Two himself, Lawrence Welk. And there's a movie parody, a kind of mashup of I Was a Teenage Werewolf and The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, the latter set in the high-pressure world of Madison Avenue public relations and advertising, similar to the setting of TV's Mad Men. So we'll hear the names of several ad agencies conflated and a bunch of ad-speak cliches from the 1950s. From CBS, October 6, 1957, it's The Stan Freeberg Show. This is the 13th show of a series of a brand-new radio series. From Hollywood, we present the Stan Freeberg Show. With the music of Billy Mays. Plus, 
songs of Peggy Taylor with Doris Butler, June Parade, Peter Leeds, and the Judd Conlon Rhythm Airs. You may not find us on your TV, because in case you did not know, we're being brought to you on, brought to you on, brought to you on our Good evening. Good evening. <laughs> well, tonight we are featuring someone for everyone, you might say. For the kiddies, we have a special uh, horror movie. <laughs> Plus a panel of experts discussing where is the circus going. <laughs> Before we meet our circus panel, however, your friend and mine, Billy May, will get us off to a flying start with an unusual rendition of Cocktails for Two. Take it, Billy. Yeah, well, where's the rest of it, Billy? That, that was only the verse. That was only the verse of the song. Well, everybody knows the chorus of this turkey. <laughs> Come on, will you please play the chorus? No, man. Look, I'm not knocking the way you played the verse, you understand, but aren't you really going to play the chorus for us? No, man. That's worse than waiting for the other shoe to drop. <laughs> Before we have our uh, circus panel, we'd like to get some questions to ask our experts from some of the people in the audience. And uh, let me just get down here in the audience. Here is a lady. What is your name, madam? Mrs. George Heininger. <laughs> uh, may I ask you a question? Certainly. What do I get? <laughs> get? Art Linkletter gives prizes. <laughs> so where's my refrigerator? <laughs> We're not giving prizes. We just want you to suggest some questions. For answering that, I don't get nothing. Well, uh... Plastic bowl I could get. All right, now look, look. They give you that with ten gallons of gas at Mark C. Bloom. <laughs> yes, I know. Plus green stamps. <laughs> Wait a minute. Oh, right. Just a minute here. Here's your plastic bowl. Thanks for nothing! <laughs> yes. <clears throat> now, uh, what do you think can improve the circus? Well, I like the circus just the way it is. 
And thank you for your stimulating question. Now, here's a man over here. Uh, sir, do you mind if I ask you a question? No, I guess that'd be all right. You're Steve Allen, aren't you? <laughs> no, no, Stan Freeberg. Oh, yeah, I've heard of you. Yeah. I don't know where, but I've heard of you. <laughs> Good. Good. <laughs> now, we'd like to get a question from you about uh, how to improve circus attendance. Well, Steve, uh, when I was a kid, I ate too much popcorn. You know, I got sick. Mm. I haven't been back since. And what is your suggestion? Give Tums with the popcorn. <laughs> Dandy suggestion. And thank you very much, sir. You're welcome, Steve. With profound questions like those, uh, I'm certain confidentially we'd have a hung jury, a panel. <laughs> We'll just forego the discussion group for tonight. Maybe some other time. Stan? Well, Peggy Taylor! Stan, a, uh, a little while ago, you called the Brooklyn Dodgers bums. Are they really bums? No. No, look, they're not really bums, Peggy. Yeah, that's just what they call them. A real bum is someone who travels around all the time and has no place to go. Well... <laughs> Yeah. While I'm thinking of an answer for that, why don't you sing? You know, I'd like that. Good. Ladies and gentlemen, here now is our own Peggy Taylor singing one of the greatest ballads to come out of the 30s. And the angels sing. Sing, angel. Thank you very much, Peggy. 
Well, in recent months, a brave new type of motion picture has been sweeping the country's screens, a hybrid of the horror picture and the epic of adolescence. Such memorable titles as I Was a Teenage Werewolf (laughs) have proved a real shot in the exhibitor's arm. However, just as Newsweek announced that shock around the clock was catching on, (laughs) Daily, Daily Variety reports that movie theaters again have a pain in the box office. May we suggest as a remedy... A new kind of story. A sort of cinema composite. Twentieth Century Freebird presents Gray Flannel Hat Full of Teenage Werewolves. Yes, I look like a normal werewolf. Happy, respectable, pointy-toothed, accepted by the werewolf community. But little do they know of that nameless terror with which I live. That unspeakable thing that turns me when the sun is full into an advertising man! How did it start? I do not know. I only remember that one night I returned to my home under a certain bridge in Westchester County, New York. I had spent a normal night werewolfing around Scarsdale (laughs) and was just getting in when my father woke up. Hey, is that you, Lobo? Yes, Pop. What do you mean, getting in at this hour? It's only 4.30 a.m. A good, decent werewolf is supposed to be out till at least 5.30. Oh, Pop. When I was at your age, I was out till sun up every morning. Well, no matter. Did you do some good werewolfing tonight? Yeah, but, but I get tired of running around showing my fangs and biting people. Give me a curfew, Pop Make me get in by 4.30 Listen Don't you never want to mount to nothing? This is America Where any kid can grow up to be Dracula (laughs) Yeah, but I don't want to be a werewolf for a living Son, bite your tongue I don't want to be a werewolf I don't... You've broken the werewolf oath. It's lucky your mother ain't awake to hear you say that. Break her heart. Now go to sleep before I give you the back of my claw again. Karloff knows what'll happen to you now. But I didn't go to sleep. I lay there thinking. How long, I do not know. The sun began to come up. I felt as though a strange transfiguration were taking place. My fangs became short and blunt. My head became crew cut. (laughs) The hair on my body slowly turned into gray flannel. My head filled with senseless metaphor. 
And suddenly I knew that I was turning into an advertising man. Let's roll it all up into one big ball of wax, gentlemen. <laughs> uh, Miss Hotchkiss, give me the presentation on the Emerson account. Mm. Wake up! Wake up, Paul! Lobo's out of his head! What? Oh, He's saying weird things in his sleep. Like what? Well, it sounded like he said, Miss Hotchkiss, bring me the Emerson account. <laughs> He's sick! He must have been a vegetarian. <laughs> Look at him there. He's got a man's suit on. Follow up. He's running toward the tracks. Where's he going? Don't worry, none more. He's probably just gone back out to bite a couple commuters. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good boy, Lobo! As I ran out from under the bridge... I saw a train approaching, bound for New York. As it came abreast of me, I leapt onto it through the open door. All right, come on, Johnson. Let's uh, walk on back to the club car and get some coffee. Oh, check. What? Oh, look, there's a guy sort of crouching in the vestibule. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing down on all fours, old man? Uh, well, let's roll it all up into one big ball of wax, gentlemen. Oh, uh, how's that? Hey, look here, Johnson's my name. Are you from Scarsdale? I don't believe I saw you at the station. Why, uh... <clears throat> Bogarty's my name. You mind if I ask what business you're in? <clears throat> Miss Hotchkiss, bring me the Emerson account. Ah, work for an advertising agency, huh? That's a small world, so do we. <clears throat> well, let's send up the flag and see if anybody salutes. He must work for our agency. Funny, though. Never seen him around the office. Yeah. Hey, fellas, are we going to stand in this vestibule all day? Let's get some coffee, gentlemen. I went on in with Johnson and Fogarty to their agency on Madison Avenue. A place called Batten, Barton, Rubicum, and Thompson. Naturally, I started out as a copywriter and worked my way up. I learned new things to say, like, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, boys. Let's mother hen the idea. And I like it, but... <laughs> With my gray flannel suit, I worked my way up the ladder until I was vice president. I had taken the name of Brysanger, and no one suspected me. I continued being werewolf by night, ad man by day, because when the sun came up, I could not control this gray flannel thing that came over me. <laughs> and then, of course, there was the business of Miss Wilway. <clears throat> Would you uh, come in a moment, Miss Wilway, and bring me the food folder? Yes. Now, um, Ogerty, I, uh, <laughs> I hope you don't feel badly because I've been made vice president and you haven't. Oh, no, no, no. That's the way the cookie crumbles, Brysack. <laughs> My day is coming. What do you mean by that, Fogarty? <laughs> Nothing. 
Here's the presentation on the food account, Mr. Bryce. The food account, yeah. <clears throat> yes, thank you, Miss Wilway. Uh, by the by, Miss Wilway, uh, <laughs> how's about uh, lunch with me today? Mm, gee, Mr. Brysacker, I'd love it. But uh, wouldn't you rather make it for dinner? Well, yeah. Uh, no, I, uh, <clears throat> that is... Uh, yeah, why not for dinner? Where, where do you go at night, anyhow? None of us ever see you after you get off at the bridge outside Scarsdale. What's wrong with that? What are you implying? You think it's unusual that I got off at the bridge? No. No, I, I think it's unusual only because the train doesn't even slow down at the bridge. <laughs> yes, well, <clears throat> shall we say lunch then, Miss Wilway? I'd love it. Now, you watch out for him, Lucretia. <laughs> I hear he's a regular wolf. What do you mean by that? Well, look, th- th- there's no need to snap at me, Bryce Hacker. <whistles> Gee, look at his eyes, boy. Oh, Mr. Bryce Hacker, you're so cute when you're mad. <laughs> yeah, well, don't just stand there. Wipe off his chin. <laughs> uh, all right, come on, Fogarty. They're waiting for us in there in a meeting. I'll expect you to back me up. Sure. Right against the wall. Ah, uh, gentlemen. Good morning, J.B. Morning, G.G., H.L., P.Q., B.B., D.O. <laughs> well, now, let's hear your suggestions on the food account, Bryce Echo. <clears throat> yes. Well, I mother hen this idea for some time, and I think it's about ready to hatch. Well, let's run up the flag and see if anybody salutes, huh? <laughs> you will give me a chance, Fogarty. I'll get on with my presentation. Yes. Uh... <clears throat> Here are the new uh, food radio commercials, gentlemen. Hot off, off, off the press. <laughs> uh, put it on the machine there, Fogarty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you scratched my commercial! <laughs> now, now, easy there, Bryce Sacker. There's no need to bite Fogarty's head off. I'd like that. <laughs> yes, but we're all playing on the same side of the net. If we just rally together, perhaps we can ace one over. Brysacker's just a little distraught, G.H. I happen to know that he's been working nights on this. Nights? Well, now, come on, come on now. Play the record, Fogarty, and we'll see how the ball bounces. (laughs) Any time is the time for food, 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 food. Just put it in your mouth. Chew it up with your teeth and swallow it. You can bet your bottom dollar you'll say... Food is good. (laughs) Here's a man right here. Uh, Pardon me, sir. I understand you've eaten food. Yeah, I have. Uh, Would you describe the sensation for us? Yeah, well, before I ate it, my stomach was growling something fierce. I had a kind of pain in it. And uh, what would you call the pain? Well, sort of uh, hunger. (laughs) Yes, hunger. A copyrighted name for Food Incorporated. And what happened to the pain after you ate some food? It went away. (laughs) Yes, leading specialists agree that food is the number one cure for hunger. Put food in your tummy, tum, 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 tummy, tum, 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 tummy, tum, tum. If you haven't any teeth up above a beanie,
Is that it, Bryce Ackham? Yes, it is, G.H. What do you think of it? Well, I like it, but it doesn't have enough... um, It hasn't got enough... uh... Well, I couldn't agree with you more, G.H. No, sir. (laughs) I like it. I like it very much. Bryce Ackham's done a wonderful job here. But I move that we give it the deep six and move on to something that really needs brainstorming. Something important that needs a lot of sculling. But what about my commercial? Now, don't interrupt Fogarty when he's got something in the hopper. Bend the tree a little more, Fogarty, and maybe some of the branches will fall into place. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay. I, uh... I blue-skied this quite a bit, and... I move that we find a summer replacement for Rin Tin Tin. Agreed, agreed, agreed. After Fogarty pulled that one, I could scarcely control myself. I could see them all staring at the white froth about my mouth. (laughs) To ward off any suspicion, I whipped out a razor and shaved. Time went on, Miss Wilway and I fell hopelessly in love. But I dared not reveal my true identity. She might feel picky about being engaged to a werewolf. (laughs) How was I to know if I could trust myself with her at night? Under a harvest moon, would I hold her hand or eat it? Then again, how could I take her home to father? I knew she was safe with mother. (laughs) Whose bite hasn't been too effective ever since that night in the fog at Chappaqua when she mistakenly bit a bronze statue of Horace Greeley and lost all her teeth. (laughs) But fate had a trick up her sleeve. One day at the office... You rang for me, Mr. Brosacker. <laughs> Lucretia, my darling. Lucretia. We're alone at last. Oh, Lucretia. How long must we go on like this? I could go on loving you forever, Al. But when am I going to meet your parents? I wish they'd have me for dinner sometime. <laughs> <laughs> You don't know what you're saying, Lucretia. Hello? What's that? It's getting dark. The sun is going down. Well, quickly, what time is it? It's high noon. High noon, great Scott. It must be an eclipse. I, I, I've got to get out of here. Oh, stick around, Ralph. It's so dark, I... <sighs> Lucretia, now the truth is out. You see me as I really am. A werewolf. Ralph, what a pleasant surprise. (laughs) Lucretia, you mean... Yes, Ralph. When the sun goes down, I too am a werewolf. (laughs) I noticed your nylons were getting a little furry there. When I hold your sweet hairy hand 
tight in mine. Clammy. <laughs> but it's fine. I long for a darling damp face such as thine. As clammy, clammy, clammy as mine. Say, Bryce Lager, how about this eclipse? <laughs> how about it, Fogarty? Hey, that's the kind of animal we need to replace Rin Tin Tin. Just like those, you know, wolf suits you guys got on. <laughs> Not guys, Fogarty. Lucretia, yeah, what a riot you guys are in those costumes. Ha ha ha. Cut it out, Price Sager. That's a little too realistic. Uh, you too, Lucretia. I mean, fun's fun, but keep back. Uh, let's send up the flag in the one ball of wax. Ha ha. Uh, Let's mother hand the blue sky off the top of my head. <laughs> the top of your head is right, Ogerty. Hey! Ah! <laughs> Isn't it wonderful how love always triumphs in the end, Lucretia? <laughs> I've got you. And I've got you. And, and we've both got... so much for our bedtime story. <laughs> oh, by the way, those of you who several weeks ago sent us those many card and letter... Uh, <laughs> uh, to, say, uh, <laughs> to say nothing of countless phone call... <laughs> congratulating us on our takeoff on a certain well-known accordion-playing band leader... I uh, may be interested to know that it is now a capital record which came out this week under the title Wanna Fall, I Wanna Fall. <laughs> I, uh, I hope you find it in your pocketbook to buy it. If only to skim it across Lake Michigan. Well, comes now, comes now a rather unhappy announcement. Two weeks from tonight, you will hear the final broadcast of the Stan Freeberg Show. While we are all rather saddened by this turn of events, We've had a lot of fun this past season, and we want to do for you on our final show the things you have enjoyed the most. So we'll be looking forward to receiving your letters as soon as possible, telling us what you would like to hear us do two weeks from tonight. Until next week, this is Stan Freeberg saying thanks for listening, God bless you, and good night. Show is produced in Hollywood by Pete Barnum and is written by Stan Freeberg and Pete Barnum. 
featuring the music of Billy May, Judd Conlon's with the mares, and the songs of Nicky Taylor, with Garth Butler, Peter Leeds, and June Beret. But soon, The 13th of 15 episodes of The Stan Freeberg Show, broadcast in the fall of 1957. It's part of our Stan Freeberg birthday tribute here on The Big Broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Leave it to co-producer Jill to find a rare and wonderful example of Stan Freeberg's work as a dramatic actor. It comes from a series he must have respected a great deal, Suspense. I say that because Mr. Freeberg was a perfectionist in his own radio work, and Suspense was a consistently well-produced series throughout its more than two decades on the air. It was a CBS series, but this example comes from an Armed Forces rebroadcast. The story includes references to the rather sketchy lottery game of punch boards and to some points of Brooklyn geography, including Pitkin Avenue in Brownsville. It's an episode called alibi me and it comes from april 20th 1958 and the series suspense suspense and the producer of radio's outstanding theater of thrills the master of mystery and adventure william and robeson one of the most unpredictable things about this business of entertainment is talent we have seen singers become actors Example, Frank Sinatra. And actors become singers. Example, Jeff Chandler. Steve Allen composes music. Ernie Kovacs writes a novel. Jackie Gleason conducts an orchestra. And now we present the latest talent turnabout, Stan Freeberg, satirist. Whom you are about to hear in a new identity, Stan Freeberg, actor. Listen, listen then as Mr. Freeberg stars in Alibi Me. And now... Alibi Me, starring Stan Freeberg. A tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. This time it's a showdown. I've took all I'm going to take from Julie. It's tough enough to hustle a buck even without interference from him. This time it's a showdown. For real. Julie... I want to talk to you. What? Look at you. No manners. No knock on the door. No could I come in. No good afternoon. No manners. No class. Always on the muscle. I want to talk to you. Uh, a little more relaxative with a voice. This ain't no candy store in Brownsville. Now listen, Julie. Didn't you hear what I said? Keep it quiet. Keep it class. I want to know what's the big idea, you hear me? I just come from Pitkin Avenue. There ain't a candy store. There ain't a pool room. There ain't a bar that'll handle my punch boards anymore. Not one. We now take from Julie, they said. They said correct. But but that's my territory. I build up the punch board business there. I know. I watched. You hustled good. You built it up real nice for me, and I appreciate it. I already sent you the biggest lollipop in town. The biggest lollipop in town for the town's biggest sucker. Julie... I'm warning you. You're warning me what? What'll you do? Give me a double whammy like in the funnies? Ever since we was kids, you hate me, I hate you, and it's like a kind of mutual life insurance. That punch board business is mine. I need it. 
I need that dough. You need dough? I'll tell you what. Here's a half a buck. Run down, get me a corned beef sandwich, and keep the change. Here, catch. <laughs> Julie! Julie, I told you I... Look at the face on him. If looks could kill, huh, kid? I'm not kidding, Julie. Now put that phone down, Georgie. No. Put it down, kid. Now remember Larkin. Six o'clock, I got to report to Larkin on my parole. They're going to know you done it. Georgie, Larkin is going to know it. Georgie! That does it. No pulse. Nothing. Not a one. Just one stinker less in the world. I looked down at Julie and I remember standing next to him in Larkin's office in a precinct station house years ago. And Larkin saying, If one of you punks is ever knocked off, my first suspect will be the other. I better have a good alibi, whichever one of you does it. Because I'm warning you now, once I get you down to headquarters, you're a hot seater. I need an alibi. A good alibi. How much time do I have to set one up? Ten after four, and at six, Julie's supposed to report to Larkin. Till six. Okay, that's an hour and fifty minutes. For an alibi, I need people. Who'll alibi me? Who? Leo, the bartender down at the Shamrock. He's the one. He'll alibi me. Good old Leo. Georgie! Oh, Georgie, Lord, love your boy. You're a sight for sir eyes. <laughs> hey, what do you have, huh? Just name it, it's on the house. Ah, uh, Scotch. Scotch. Sure. <laughs> Leo, uh, yeah, boy. we've known each other a long time, yes? I hate to think of the years that's passed since we met. I'm getting old, Georgie, old. <laughs> Not too old to remember a couple of favors I've done for you. Georgie, boy, not if I was to live to be a hundred. <laughs> hey, drink hearty, huh? <laughs> Thanks, sir. Look, I, I want you to do a little something for me. Oh, well, look, kid, I, I'm a little short right now. No, 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 it ain't uh, money. I, it's just, well, in case you should be asked, I've been sitting here since half past three, huh? Yeah? Why? What's the difference, why? Anybody special you want me to say it to? You gonna do it or no? Oh, look, Georgie, I got a right to know what I'm getting into. You want me for an alibi? I want to know why. Well, let's not make a production out of it. Uh, chances are you won't be asked. But if you are, I've been here since half past three. You know what I mean? Okay? Would uh, Lieutenant Larkin maybe be one of the ones who might ask? Could be. Look, Georgie, you want money? I'll find your money. I don't know where, but I'll find it. You want food? I'll feed you. You want clothes? Just say the word, huh? But if Larkin is looking for you... I ain't alibying you. In a moment, we continue with the second act of... Suspense. Memo on medals. Interesting information about our military awards and decorations. Campaign medals were authorized by Congress in 1905 for all officers and men engaged in specified wars and military action, including such widely divergent battles as the Civil War in the United States and the Boxer Rebellion in China. The Navy and Marine Corps have a special Manila Bay Medal for members of the United States Asiatic Squadron under command of Commodore George Dewey in May of 1898. The Haitian Campaign of 1915 is commemorated with a medal, as is the Santo Domingo Expedition, 
which suppressed a revolt in that country and preserved order during elections in 1916. The Army has its Mexican Service Medal for those involved in any of several expeditions or engagements from April 12, 1911 through June 16, 1919. There is also the Army of Cuban Pacification Medal for United States troops who, from October of 1906 to April of 1909, helped establish a stable government in that island nation. The Victory Medal was initially awarded to all United States service personnel in World War I expeditionary forces, including, for the first time, women serving in the military units. There is a story behind every American medal, a proud story of devotion to country and unselfish service to keep it strong and free. And now, starring Stan Freeberg, Act Two of Alibi Me. It's 25 past four. We've got only 95 minutes left till six o'clock. When Julie don't show, Larkin goes looking. First for Julie, then for you. You gotta be ready for Larkin when he finds you, and you gotta have a pretty sensational alibi. He won't settle for less. Not him. Think, Georgie. Think, think who you know. Who are your friends? Georgie, think who? Who? <laughs> you see? It works. A second thought and it comes to you. Joni, that's who. Good old Joni. She'll be your alibi. Crazy about you. Always has been. Ever since that day up at Bear Mountain. Oh, let her be in. Please let her be in. I'll never ask nothing again. Just let her. Well, look what the cat drives. Hello, Joni, baby. I shouldn't talk to you, Georgie. I really shouldn't. It's more than two months. You want to know why? She began to mean too much to me, kid. So stay away from her, I says to myself. Just don't ever see her. She'll wear off, you know what I mean? Well, I was wrong, Joni. You mean more to me now than ever. I couldn't hold out no longer. That, that's why I'm here. Oh, Georgie, baby, don't ever stay away again. No matter what the reason, don't ever stay away from me. I'm back for good. Oh, it's been terrible without you. All the time singing the blues, not feeling like going out or seeing anybody. Well, that's all over now. You know what? We're going to celebrate. Tonight, we're going out into town. Dinner, a show, dancing afterwards. Crazy, huh? Mm, I got a new number <laughs> I've been dying to wear. <laughs> good, good. Uh, oh, uh, by the way, sugar, uh, anybody uh, been here today? No, not a soul. I was all alone, feeling just awful until you came. Uh, Johnny, look, uh, in case anybody asks you, not that anybody's likely to, but in case they should, you know what I mean? Uh, do me a favor. Will you tell them I was here with you all day? I'll tell the world you were here with me. I'll shout it from the rooftops. I don't care who hears it. I love you, Georgie. I just love you, love you, love you. Yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, but look, Joni, uh, in case anybody wants you to be definite, uh, will you say I was here since, oh, since half past three and stick to it? No matter what? Half past three? I'll say I was with... Wait a second. Be trying to pull. Relax, Joni, relax. No. No, Georgie. What's the matter, kid? What's the matter? Plenty. Plenty's the matter. You dirty, no-good, miserable son Joanie, of a... Joanie, now listen to me. I'm beginning to get it. 
trying to sucker me to give yourself an alibi. Joni, stop yelling. Listen to me. What I said is true. I need you. Sure you do. So I'll say you were here with me since half past three. You'll get no alibi from me, Mr. Wise Guy. Now pick yourself up out of that chair and get out of here. How do you like that? Do things to people all your life, and when you want something from them, an alibi, for instance, what do you get? Nothing. That Leo, that Joni, I'll fix them when they get out of this. I mean, how do I get out? Only an hour and five minutes left before Julie's due to see Lieutenant Larkin, and he ain't gonna make the meet. Only 65 minutes. Who is it to give you an airtight, ironclad, cement foundation alibi? Think hard, baby. Who's around town? Who's left? Timmy. Dope, you should have thought of him first. Timmy, laying there in the hospital, of course. Good old Timmy. Hey, good to see you. Hi, Timmy. Looking 100%. Sorry, I didn't have time to bring candy or flowers, you know what I mean? How you doing? Oh, not bad, not bad. At least I'm alive. Doctor said it was a miracle. Uh... How's things with you? Tim, I'm leveling with you. I come up by the back stairs. I didn't want no one to see me. Oh, yeah? In a spot, Georgie? I need an alibi for this afternoon. Since half past three. Oh, you got it. You got it. In this private room. Nobody comes near it. Nurses, orderlies, I don't come unless I give out a yell. And I can have visitors any time I like. No one was here all day. Gee, Timmy, I'll never forget you for this. <laughs> you know, you got one of the oldest alibis in the world. You were sitting up with a sick friend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anybody doubts it, you, you send them to me. Shows you. You never know who your friends are till you're in a jam. Uh, I'll have a nurse come in so she can see. And then you take the elevator down and ask some dumb questions so the operator will remember you. Boy, you miss a trick, do you? <laughs> Thanks again, Tim. Uh, I'll ring for her now. I, uh, uh, Judge, Judge. What is it? My ticket. Judge, Tim, Judge. Tim, what is it? You want a drink of water? Uh, uh, Timmy. Timmy. Tim, don't die now. Tim, answer me. Say something, please. He's dead. My alibi is dead. up the stairs. And I hear a sound. My landlady, Mrs. Ettinger, is nailing down linoleum in the hallway. <laughs> Good old Mrs. Ettinger. Oh, hello, Georgie. You just come in? Yeah, but uh, if anybody's to ask you, Mrs. Ettinger, especially Larkin, you tell him I've been in all afternoon. Understand? Larkin? Lieutenant Larkin? Yeah. 
Well, I can't do that, Georgie. I won't lie to that cop. Oh, yes, you will. You'll tell Larkin I'm in my room all day. No, I won't. Mrs. Edinger, you don't tell Larkin I'm in all day? I tell him about Charlotte. I, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. I... You don't, Mrs. Edinger? Please, Georgie, I don't want no trouble. Listen, you'll be in plenty of trouble if Larkin hears about your daughter lifting a fur jacket right out of a department store. I made Charlotte give it back. I marched her into the store myself. We give it back to the manager. Sure you did. But a crime's a crime, whether a store prosecutes or not. Oh, Georgie, please, she's only 15. She's a good kid. Her life would be ruined. You wouldn't tell me. Now, now, Mrs. Ettinger, what's there to cry about? I'll keep my mouth shut just like you want. And you'll open your mouth just like I want, and everything will be fine. Larkin asks you, I wasn't out of my room all afternoon. Okay? You you, you won't tell him about Charlotte? It's up to you, Mrs. Ettinger. All right, Georgie. All right. I'll say you was in all day. And there's my alibi. Safe, sealed, and delivered. The best alibi in the world. Quarter past six. It won't be long now. I gotta watch myself when Larkin's here. <laughs> Just the right attitude. Not too anxious. Not too casual. Just right. Yeah? Well, who is it? Open up, Georgie. It's me. Larkin. Lieutenant Larkin? Well, well, well. What a surprise. And to what do I owe this great pleasure? Remember I once told you, Georgie, if anything happened to Julie or to you, I first pick up would be the other one. I remember. So what? Yeah. Uh oh. You mean Julius? He's been. He's been made dead. No kidding. Well, what do you know? And you've come to offer me your shoulder to cry on. You're not surprised. I'm not the only guy who hated Julius. You know. Tell you what. Let me know who did it. When you find out, I'll contribute a saw buck to his defense. Save your money, Georgie. You might need it. Yeah. How come? Remember I told you at the same time you'd better have a good alibi? Because once I got you down to headquarters, I'd prove you did it. The words strike a bell. Give, Georgie. Where were you today? I was nowhere. That's a fact. That's a fact. I was right in here all afternoon. Can you prove it? Well, it ain't easy to prove you were somewhere alone all day. Can you prove you were here? Well, I didn't see anybody except... Oh, yeah. Mrs. Ettinger, my landlady. Yeah? All right. Let's hear her version. All right. Mrs. Ettinger? Mrs. Ettinger? What is it? Come in here a minute, will you? Oh, now what? It's always something. What do you want, Georgie? Uh, this is Lieutenant Larkin. He, uh... I won't keep you long, Mrs. Ettinger. Just a couple of questions. Were you in all day? The whole day. Was Georgie in all day? Yeah, yeah, sure, he was in. You're positive? I'm positive. What makes you so positive? What makes me so positive? I cleaned his room. That's what makes me so positive. And I pressed a suit for him later. That's what makes me so positive. And when I was sweeping the hall, his door was open and I saw him. How positive can you get? You're prepared to swear to that in a court of law? Go ahead, Mrs. Edinger. Swear. Swear by your daughter's head. I, I swear. All right. 
Thank you. You can go. Thanks, Lieutenant. That's it then, Georgie. Meaning? Meaning your alibi stinks as far as I'm personally concerned. But for the record, it lets you off the hook. You hate that, don't you? You'd like to hang the big one on me, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, who is it? Uh, Lightning Delivery Service got a package for George Lennox. Come in. Who is it from? Uh, uh, Mr. Moore. Mr. Julie Moore. Julie? Open it, Georgie. Go on. Go on, open it. I want to see what Julie sent you. Well, uh, okay. It's... That's only a lollipop. I never seen such a big one. All right, who asked your opinion? Beat it. Go on, get out of here. What are you waiting for? What do you think he's waiting for, Georgie? Stake the kid. Stake him? What am I, the mint? You stake him. Okay, cheapskate, okay. Keep your lousy tip. Fine thing. I'm here twice this morning and three times this afternoon, shut and up. you're not in. Shut Five up. times up and down them stairs and not even a nickel. Will you shut up? Here you are, kid. Here's your tip. Thanks, Mac. Oh, oh, Buck. Thanks. Don't mention it, kid. You earned it. Oh, thanks. Oh, I almost forgot. There's a message goes with the lollipop. Um, to the biggest sucker in town from Julie. That's all there is to the message. It's enough. Get your hat and coat, Georgie. <laughs> Suspense, in which Mr. Stan Freeberg starred in William N. Robeson's production of Alibi Me by Third Jeffrey, adapted for suspense by Walter Brown Newman. Supporting Mr. Freeberg in Alibi Me were Kathy Lewis, Geraldine Wall, Vic Perrin, Jerome Thor, Jack Crucian, Eddie Marr, and Dick Beals. Listen. Listen again next week when we return with another tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. This is the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service.
Alibi Me, a radio play from the series Suspense in the spring of 1958, starring Stan Freeberg. Mr. Freeberg, who passed away in 2015, was born 96 years ago on this date. It's the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, in HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. Earlier tonight, we played Stan Freeberg's parody of the radio series Dragnet. And now, we're going to play a serious detective show that went Dragnet one better. The story you are about to hear isn't true, as dragnet cases are, but the cops trying to crack the case are real-life New York City police detectives. It's a really interesting idea, and not surprisingly, it comes from that innovative series, the CBS Radio Workshop, and from a time before the Supreme Court established the right to counsel in state felony cases. It's an episode with an elegant title, Cops and Robbers. And it comes from March 16, 1956, and the CBS Radio Workshop. CBS Radio, a division of the Columbia Broadcasting System, and its 217 affiliated stations present the CBS Radio Workshop, radio's distinguished series dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. Transcribed. Cops and Robbers is a game played by children, and it's a game actors play on the radio for a living. Tonight, the actors, as usual, will be playing make-believe robbers, but the cops will be real. The CBS Radio Workshop presents Cops and Robbers. My name is Stanley Ness. I'm a writer, mostly of crime, criminals, and what police do about them. For a long time, I've wondered what real detectives would do when confronted with a fictitious crime. And tonight, the CBS Radio Workshop is giving me a chance to find out. First, so you, the actors, and I can start off knowing what the detectives will try to find out, I've written a short dramatic sketch which we've recorded while our detectives, all retired members of the police department, city of New York, are across the street having coffee. The scene, a one-room flat on the Upper East Side of New York. It's me, Dunk. Well, come on in. It's open. It's not open. Oh, honest to goodness. Hi, baby. Oh, be careful. My fingernails are wet. Oh. Well, where is it? Well, where's what? The chow mein. You were going to stop at the Chinese restaurant and bring back chow mein. Where you been? Oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah, I was. I, I forgot. You forgot? How could you forget what you went out for? Ellie, baby, listen. Yeah, you got to stand by me. I'm in a jam. You went out to get chow mein. How could you get in a jam? I did. That's, that's all there is to it. What kind of a jam? I can't tell you right now. You expect me to stand by you and you can't tell me? Why don't you get the chow mein? Forget about the chow mein, will you? Listen, you got the telephone number that bar and grill where Joe hangs out, that Glenham's? What's Joe got to do with this? Have you got the telephone number? Yeah, I got it. It's in the drawer there. One of their cards. Oh, get it for me, will you, baby? Get it yourself. My fingernails are all wet. What's this all about, anyway? 
I'll tell you. I'll tell you later. Well, where is it, anyway? It's there. Look. It's look, not tear apart. Oh, here it is. Look, I got to go out in the hall and phone him. Dunk? Yeah? Oh, will you sit down and relax and tell me what this is all about? I don't have to sit down. I can tell you standing up. I shot a guy. You what? I shot a guy. You went out to get a container of chow mein. How could you shoot a guy? I don't know how I could, but I did. So we know what our detectives will try to find out. The crime referred to was of such a serious nature that the precinct detective squad commander was called from his home to supervise the investigation. Our squad commander tonight is Lieutenant Dan Campion, who retired from the police department a little over a year ago after 25 years in the job. The detectives working under him will be Howard C. Clancy, Jerry Heaney, and Richard Jacobson. Approximately an hour and ten minutes after the crime occurs, Detective Jacobson, who is carrying the squeal, which means it is his case, has returned to the station house and is typing up a report on the progress of the investigation so far. Remember, the detectives have no script. They are playing themselves, doing a job just like they've done every day. What's up, Jake? Oh, hello, Lieutenant. We had a tough stick-up in the precinct tonight. Oh, another one? Yeah, like a store over on 72nd Street. What time did it happen, Jake? Oh, about 9.50. It's that Fairland liquor store over oh, 280, yeah. 82nd. Yeah. And uh, a fellow stuck a gun into the clerk who was in front of the store, and the owner was in back doing a little bookkeeping. When uh, he stepped out, he had a pistol. So you got a permit for it? Oh, yes, he had that. We checked on that. But anyway, he, poor fellow, got shot. Is he seriously hurt? Oh, yes. He's uh, alive yet, though. Oh, yes. Oh. He's over at Metropolitan Hospital. He fired a shot at the stick-up man. Stick-up man fired two at him and hit him. And he went down. He Where was before. he shot, uh, Dick? Under the chin it hit him. Deflected into his jaw just below his lips. Oh. Anything else to it? He got a little more than $800. He grabbed a uh, money in a paper bag and uh, ran out the front door in the street. Anybody see him? Any good identification? Well, him? pretty fair identification. The uh, fellow had a car. We found it out later. He uh, ran around the corner on 3rd Avenue. He hit some old woman, knocked it down. Anybody see him? There was a sanitation man trying to help the old woman up. But he saw this fellow continue to run. He went around 3rd Avenue and looked him over, and he was getting into a car and got away. You got the on... sanitation man oh, name and all yes, like that? Yes, we have Good. that. Good. But on the back of his car, he had some of that red tape, that fluorescent tape they're using. Oh, yes. yes. And uh, that was all over the back bumper. And he got the last three numbers of the plate. Okay. I sent out alarm for the car over the teletype with those three numbers, and uh, all the boys in the neighboring precincts have been notified. Now, Lieutenant Campion, Sergeant Klein on TS just rang upstairs, and he says Dowd over on Post 11 thinks he's got that car spotted that's been oh, that stick-up and fine. shooting. It's over there at 2nd Avenue, 77th Street. It's a two-door Plymouth sedan. It's 3T-152. Oh, we got the full license, then. Yeah, and I verified it, and it's registered under a Joseph E. McCondy. It's 761 East 76th Street. Hey, what? Clancy, will you check lost property on that? Okay. Yeah, see if you can get the description of the car and get the owner's name and address. Yeah, Dowd's is guarding the car over there. He's not letting anybody go near it. Say, Good. Jake. You go over with Howie after he makes that call and see if we can get that owner in here and we'll talk to him. Very good, we'll do it. Okay, get right on it. Now we see the detectives are off on the right track. But what about the characters played by our actors? Let's get back to them. 
The following scene was written, rehearsed, and recorded in advance. And, of course, Lieutenant Campion and his men are unaware of what is going on in this scene, just as they would be in the job. All right, Joe. I'm coming. Oh, right, Joe. Oh, and you don't keep that a friend to me. That was the best fight all season, and I got to miss the finish. I appreciate it, Joe. Hello, Ellie. Hi. Well, what's the big jam you're in? You sure it's not the car? No, it's not the car. It only should be. Where's the keys? Here. Here you are, Joe. Mm. Where'd you leave the car? In the same place, right where you always leave it. All right. Now, what's this big jam you're in? He went out to get some chow mein to bring back. Let me tell it, will you? Well, who's stopping you? I-, I went out and I-, I started to the Chinese restaurant, all right. But then I figured it's Friday. It's going to be a long weekend, and I don't have much money in my pocket. So? So I, I figured I ought to do a little work. Then I ran into you on the corner, and I said, Joe, can I borrow your car? You said, sure, why not if you fill it up with gas? So you gave me the keys, and that was that. Not yet, that wasn't that. You let me tell it my own way. So I lent you the car. Yeah, that's right. And I drove around scouting for a good place to make. I parked it on 72nd Street where I could get away easy. I walked around the corner, and there was this liquor store just right for picking. Using my car for the get? It was all perfectly simple, Joe. Wait, wait, there's more to come. What's to come, Dunk? Well, it was a good touch, and I cleaned out the register, and I'm heading for the door, and all of a sudden, another clerk comes out from the back with a gun. Uh-oh. So what could I do? I blast away. He drops, and I take out around the corner for the car. And to make a long story short, I'm in the car, and I'm away. Is the guy dead? He didn't wait around to find out. My car you got to borrow to go heist the joint and shoot up a guy. That's a fine thing. I'm sure. I'm sure I got away okay. I don't think anybody made the license number. There were some people looking at me as I came around the corner, but I don't think they made the number on the car. Well, supposing somebody did. That's what I want to talk to you about, Joe. Look, if by any chance somebody did and the cops come talking to you, don't tell them you lent me the car. What do you mean, don't tell them I lent you the car? What am I going to tell them? Well, you'll know what to say, Joe. You'll think of something. There ain't a chance in a thousand anybody made the car, but I just want to cover every step of ground. Look, look, I'm an innocent bystander. I was in a bar and grill watching a fight. You didn't tell me what you were going to do. Why should I cover for you? Joe, I've known you a long time. A friend in need is a friend indeed. Oh, t- tell me, tell me something, Dunk. Huh? What? Uh, how much did you get out of the liquor store? Money, you mean? Yeah, money. Over 500. How much over 500? $812. That wasn't bad. Was it worth shooting a man for? Joe, you gotta help me. I help you plenty. Give me 400. What do you mean, give you 400? You want me to help you, don't you? But that's half. It ain't half. You got 812. All I'm asking is 400. But there's not a chance in a thousand there'll be a kickback. All right, then what are you worried about? Now, let's forget the whole thing. I'll go home and go to sleep, and if the cops talk to me, all I can tell them is the truth. Well, you got me in a box, Joe. What's your box? Give him the 400, Doug. What are you taking chances? Well, what are you uh, going to tell them if they talk to you? I don't know yet. I'll take a something. Yeah, but why? Well, you give me a chance, the deal was just sprung on me. I got to work it out. All right, Joe. You cover me now. Don't forget. Yeah, I'll cover you if they talk to me. Thanks, Joe. I knew I could count on you. Oh, boy, this is a load off my mind. What a relief. Now that it's such a relief, please go down and get the child main. Now, with sufficient information on which to act, Lieutenant Campion has instructed his men on their next step in the investigation. Detectives Clancy and Jacobson, for instance, go to 761 East 76th Street, the address listed for Joseph P. McCondy, in whose name the car is registered. Remember, from now on, there is no script. The actors are on their own. 
So are the detectives. Let's see what happens. Hey, Mike. McCondy. Mike. Is there something I could do for you, gentlemen? What's your name, Chief? Joseph P. McCondy. We're detectives. Oh, do you own an automobile? Yes, I do. What kind of a car do you have? I have a 1950 Plymouth two-door. Do you have a little accident tonight with it? No, sir. Do you have a license? Yes, sir. I have it right here. Can you see it? Sure. Is there something wrong, gentlemen? Well, you were just chatting a little accident something. tonight, I'm sure, someplace, didn't you? No, sir. You sure of that? Absolutely. You loan the car to anybody? No, sir. Where is the car now? Well, I left it on 2nd Avenue between 77th and 78th Street. What did you leave it around there for? Well, I was at a bar all night. I was watching the fights. Anybody with you? No, sir. Well, in Are the you bar, sure? I, I've a couple of boys I see every once in a while in there. What's some of their names? Give me one name. Well, there was, I, I'd give you a couple. It was Bud and Tommy. Uh-huh. But you didn't lend Bud or Tommy your car tonight, No, no, you? no. We were all I'd like to talk to you. I'll hold on. You don't mind, do you? No, sure. Do you have anything on you before you... No, sir. Absolutely not. You sure of that? I'm clean. I'm Ever clean. been arrested? No, I've never been arrested. You sure of that? Absolutely. Look, anything that you say, we're going to check. Don't forget that. Right, sir. So you might just as well tell us the truth right now. Yeah, I've never been arrested. Never been arrested? Oh, I've been down at the house a couple okay. of times. Okay, let's go. Okay. With Joe McCondy in custody, the detectives returned to the station house. They walked them upstairs to the squad room and into Lieutenant Campion's office. Son, if this is a McCondy, follow along that car. Oh, hello, Mr. McCondy. How do you do, sir? Sit down there a minute. Yes, thank you. Can I see you outside a minute, Lieutenant? Yeah, you stay in here with him, Howard. Yeah, okay. I'll be right back, Mr. McCondy. We have some other business to take care of. Could I, could I smoke in here, sir? All right? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, but don't throw the butts on the floor. Oh, no, yeah. I wouldn't do that. You want any coffee? Yeah, I wouldn't mind a little okay. black. Stand huh? up. Yeah, sure. Everything you have in your pockets, take them out and put it on the desk here. Right. Everything, no matter what it is. Okay. If it's money, count it. All right. In front of me. Yeah. Mm. It's embarrassing because I'm not too well healed. I, I only got uh, 5, 10, 11, 12, 13 dollars. 13, okay. Put it back. Okay. Okay, Any other Howie? cards? Or I have a wallet here, Howie. Okay. Yeah, no, let's look at that, will you? All right. Uh, my wallet, another wallet I gotta keep. Who do you live with at this address? Nobody. I see, all right. What do you work at, Mr. McCondy? Well, I've, I kind of dapple in uh, sports, equestrian. Uh, what do you mean, dapple? Well, you know, I hang around the uh, racetracks a little bit. You're a bookmaker? Well, a little bit. You just... take numbers? No, I don't take no numbers. Were you ever fingerprinted for anything? No, I was never fingerprinted. Never fingerprinted? No. Because but... we're going to fingerprint you. Well, that's all right. It's your privilege, I guess. Excuse me a minute. Tonight. Lieutenant, he was in the spot up on the avenue tonight. Yeah, we'll come to that. Fine. Say, uh, Jerry, check the BCI on this fellow's name and address, and you got a pretty good description of him. Okay. And uh, then I want you to check uh, the information bureau and see if he's been... Do you ever get a summons for anything? No. Never had a summons no. in your life? No. Oh, yeah. you mean a parking summons and something yeah. like that? Well, I got, I got a ticket for speeding once or twice. How yeah, long ago was summons, that? isn't it? Yeah. I, Why don't you answer the question? Well, I, I call those tickets, you know. <laughs> you were convicted so it's, then. It's polite. Is that right? You were fined? Yeah, I was fined. I, well, that's a I conviction. Oh, no. now, uh, where were you uh, at 9.20? I was at Glenham's Bar and Grill on, on 2nd Avenue between uh, about 75th and 76th Street. I got there about, uh, oh, about 9 o'clock. I had some... Uh, 
real rotten child there, and then uh, had a few beers with uh, Spud and Tommy, what I told you about. And we were chewing the rag there for about an hour. The fight went on at about 10 o'clock. And uh, we made a couple of bets, me, me and this Bud and Tommy, and... Uh, you didn't leave the premises no, between 9 and, and 10 no, o'clock? No, no, Did you see the whole fight? Yeah, I went 10 rounds. Who won the fight? I'm there. I won the... I won the... What, what odds did you get? Two to one. I gave the oh, odds. Oh, you gave the yeah. odds, huh? What did you get on that, Jerry? Anything? Hey, McCondy, what are you handing out here? You did a bit in 1952 for Pettit Larceny. What kind of a Pettit Larceny was You went to the island. Oh. What kind of a pettit larceny was that? Was that grand larceny and reduced to pettit larceny? You took a plea on it, didn't you? Yes, yes. It was grand larceny then, wasn't it? Well, yeah, I don't... Listen, I don't know the technical words for these things. Oh, you know just as much about it as we do. Well, you You know more law about that. Now, hold it, fellas. Listen, who used your car tonight? We haven't got all night. There's a man dying. I told you when we picked you up at your house that we were going to verify everything that you told us. Remember me saying that? Yeah, yeah, I know that. Listen, Mac, why don't you stop kidding? We're bringing the bartender over here. Well, you can bring him in. He's coming in. That's okay with me. Well, he take this yeah. guy over and fingerprint him and let him think this thing over. And if he don't come up with something different, boy, you're in. It's after one in the morning. A detective has gone to Glenham's Bar and Grill on 2nd Avenue to get the bartender Whitey. He brings him into Lieutenant Campion's office. Hi, Luke. Hello. Uh, this, uh, this is Harry White, and they call him Whitey. He's the bartender. This is Lieutenant Campion in charge of the squad here. Hello, Hello, Whitey. How are you? This is Detective Heaney and Detective Jacobson. Hi, Whitey. How do you do? So how long have you been in our precinct, Whitey? Oh, I've been working on a joint up there about eight years now. Eight years, huh? Yeah. All right, if I sit down? No, go ahead. 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 You can smoke. Do what you want. You know Joe McCondy, Whitey? Yeah, I know Joe a long time. You see him tonight? Yeah, yeah. He was in tonight. Was he in the general tonight? Yeah, yeah. Was he there all night? Uh... Well, wait a minute now. Pretty busy night. He came in, uh, came in a little after nine o'clock. I think it was about nine o'clock. Yeah. He was there all night then? Yeah, he was there. Uh, well, let's see. Now the fights. He was watching the fights. He was there till about uh, quarter of eleven, I think. Anyway. Who was he with, Whitey? I had a couple of pals of his. Uh, Who are they? Oh, I don't know. Their last name's Tom and Bud something. He's he's always with them. What time did Joe come in there, did you say? Well, I think it was around 9 o'clock. Joe was it 10 o'clock? Oh, no, no. He was, no, he was in at 10 o'clock. Was, was he, he there at 7.30? No, no, he wasn't there at 7.30. Well, no, did I, you miss him any time at all between 9 and 10 o'clock? Between 9 and 10? Yeah. Did you miss him? No. You took he, a bet off. No, he was there. He was drinking all the time. He... Well, he said he was there since about 7.30. All evening and all night. No, Somebody's lying that. here, Whitey. Either you or him now. No, Come on. I remember. Listen, I know. I know Joe very well. We're what about his two pals, Whitey? Did they leave the place at all tonight? No, the two pals were there. They were there all the time. They came in with hey, wait a minute. I tell you one thing. The phone rang. And uh, I picked it up and the call was for Joe. But this was uh, this about 10.30, I think. So uh, I called Joe, and Joe went up the phone. I forgot about it. I was busy, like I said, you know. And uh, suddenly Joe comes running up the bar. He says, I got to go. What time was that? Well, this was... Uh, this was about right after the fight. Was this, this male uh, or female voice? 
you mean, mean the guy yeah, that McCall called? For, it was a, it was a male voice. Male, male voice. voice. Yeah, yeah. And he called, and then Joe said he had to leave right away? Yeah, he said something about... Uh, uh, he says, uh, i got to go up to Ellie's, I think it was. What Ellie's. time was that about? I think it was about quarter of 11. It was right after the fights were over. Yeah. Oh, we don't need a lineup for this. Bring Joe in and make sure he identifies him. Uh, Dick, okay. go out and bring Joe in. Is this the fellow here? Yeah. Hi, hi, Whitey. Hi, Joe. Hi. Hey, Joe. Yeah. You said that you were in the bar all night. Yeah. Until the time you come home, the detectives met you at your door. Yeah. What are you lying about? Well, I was there. Well, well Whitey, all night. Whitey, now, stop. Whitey said you weren't there. He said you left there. What? Who's Ellie? I don't know no Ellie. Well, you got a phone call and you left the place all excited. Well, I wasn't excited. I Yeah, it's true. Who called you? I, I got a phone call. At, at Whitey's place, you see? Now, here's the way it works. And like I told you before, I... All right, I take a little book here and there, see? Listen, Joe. No, that's the truth. That's true. You want to tell you, you want to hold a bag for everybody, hold it. Because you're going to you're gonna hold it unless you tell us who you loan your car to or if somebody else uses your Maybe car. Joe would rather talk to us with Whitey outside. You wait outside a while, Yeah, Whitey. okay. Go on out with him, Dick. Huh? Very good. Good luck, Joe. All right, Whitey, thanks. Are you going to tell us who you loan your car to or not? I didn't lend it to nobody. Right, nobody had your car tonight. No, you, you had it the all only one had it. Was the keys. On the, it was on the street. Hold it, fellas. Does the car belong to you? Is sure. there? There's no mortgage on it or no, anything else. No. It all belongs to yeah, you. Yeah. Does everything in the car belong to you? That stuff in the back, uh, on the trunk, and all like Everything's that. Everything right. belongs yeah. to you, huh? Yeah. Is that right? That's right. All right. Well, how about the gun under the seat? I don't know nothing about no gun. Now you fellas heard him say everything belongs to him. And do you know with a previous misdemeanor, boy, this is a felony. You're not kidding anybody. You're in. Well, there's a man dying dying. over there. All I know is you could check with with Whitey and with Bud. Bud works in the garage on First Avenue. We'll have somebody check. McCondy, I want to tell you something. Yeah. Now, we found this gun in your car. And what we're going to do, we're going to send this gun down to the ballistic bureau to have a test made and to see if it conforms with the bullets that were shot into that man tonight. Okay. So we're just going to hold you. You are now arrested. You're arrested for 1897 of the penal law, which happens to be a felony. So I want to tell you right now, you're permitted to call somebody or write a letter. Finally, you... why don't you get smart yourself and kick in? You haven't got a chance. I tell you, I, well, everything I told you is true. We've been babying you all day and all night. I don't, I don't we're not going to baby you anymore. I, I don't want to take no raps for nobody, so... Oh, uh, you're not going to take any raps? No. Okay. Well, I'm I glad to hear that. Said. Why don't you tell the lieutenant just what okay. happened? Okay, okay. Right, let's go. I got a phone call. Let him talk. Whitey's, you see, from, uh, from Dunk. Dunk. Uh, what's Dunk's name? Dunk, Dunk Rui. Dunk Rui? Yeah, it's like Dewey with an R. Where does he live? He lives on uh, 398 71st Street. That's Ellie's. Uh, that's his girlfriend. Oh, yeah? Yeah, that's what he called me from Ellie's house. Let's take this name and address sure, for sure. a while. Check that at the BCI. Okay. See if we get anything right. on him. Go ahead now. Well, he called me up and uh, he said uh, he had to see me, you see. Yeah. So I told him to come down because I wanted to watch the fight. I didn't want to miss the last round. So he said it was very important I should come to Ellie's house as fast as I could get there. So he, was, he was the one who was excited. I wasn't excited. You're the calm type. Yeah, you know. I, so right. anyway, uh, I went over to Ellie's house and I loaned, I loaned Dunk my car. I didn't, he didn't tell me what he was going to do with, no, with the car. No, he twisted your arm for you to get it from me. Well, I, I lend him a car. He paid Where's me a Dunk couple now? of bucks. I don't know where he is now. Maybe he's at Ellie's. At Ellie's house? Yeah. What okay. time did you lend him the car? I don't know when he took it. I gave him the keys. Where do you generally meet him? At Whitey's. 
That Whitey. Yeah, yeah. But he goes steady with Ellie, huh? Yeah, I've been up there for a bit. But does he live with her? Well, he's there most of the time. Let's, Just a uh, friend. Let's be discreet, you know. What's that location again? 398 East 71st. What apartment? It's, uh... 3E, I think it is. It's on the third floor. They got a phone over there? Yeah. Okay. Say, Dick, yes, Jerry, sir. get right over to this Ellie's house. You may nail this guy right there. In fact, I think we better put him in the boob downstairs and we'll all go over. Now, 20 minutes later, the detectives are in the hall on the third floor outside of Ellie's flat. Here, as they hope to make the final arrest in the case, yeah, Lieutenant Campion gives his instructions. Yeah, but listen, everybody get your guns out right now. We don't want anybody to get hurt. Special delivery. Okay. Oh. Where's Doc? What? What do you mean? Wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Don't hide it. There's no such a hide. No, she's not. She's going to be a nice little girl. Listen, Ellie, where's Doc? Where's Doc? Dunk? Dunk who? Oh, you know Dunk who. Now, don't give us that line. Wait a minute. What you talking Really? You don't, I want huh? The place over, Lieutenant. Yeah, look this joint over. Give us a good yeah, give this a good There's nothing around. here. We'll find out. We'll find out. We're well, the best moving men in the world. We're going to scream, too, so just keep it nice Go and quiet. Go over there and sit down. Oh. It's my money. Yeah, How much is that? A couple of hundred dollars. What is a couple of hundred? It's my money. It's all I got. It's all How my much? money. How much? Uh, I didn't about two or three hundred dollars or something like that. Count that out, I saved Jake. it. Ellie, where's Dunk? I don't... Come on, we know he was up here tonight. Jerry, let her watch him counting this dough, will you? How much is there? There's $815 here. Well, $815 isn't a couple. I don't take it out and count it all the time. I don't keep my money in the bank. I keep it under there. You know, the difference between a couple of hundred dollars and $800. Look, look, I'm going to cover the door in case this bum comes in. Oh, do that yes. by all means. And yell if you need some help there. Oh, Let's well, get back to the money. Where did you money. get this money? It's my money. It's my money. It's oh, all the money I have. Don't be screaming. I ask you that again. Okay. What do you do for a living? I don't do anything right now. Where I... did you get this money? I saved it. I've, I've, I've worked other times. I've been on the stage. What kind stage. of work do you do? Well, I've been on the stage. How long ago? Oh, several years ago. Just uh, for a little while. And then I've, I've had other jobs. I've... Well, how do you maintain yourself right now? Right now, I'm, I'm unemployed. For how long? Oh, but... Six months or something like that. Six months and you got 815 fish under the cover there? You live here alone, Ellie? Yes, sir, I do. What's men's clothes doing in the closet? Some, that's, uh... Your father's. No, not my father's. There's somebody left them here. No, She'll explain. A... Come on, she'll explain. You've been arrested before, Ellie? No. Never been arrested? No. Hold on. Ellie, yeah, man. Pick him up, Ellie. Pick him up. Give him a quick fan. Take him up, Fred. What's this, Ellie? Give him a frisk. Oh, I don't know. Sit down. Sit down. Sit down there. You didn't know Dunk, huh? I didn't say I didn't know him. I said I hadn't seen him in a long time, and I hadn't. Dunk, you better get that new suit out of the closet. Oh, You're yeah. going to need it. Where are cops? I don't know you, cops. Oh, do you want to be shown? Well, sure, I want to be shown. Shut what do you up, work you at? Bum, you will show you. What, what do you work at? I don't work. I'm sick. Are you? You'll be sicker when this is over. How long do you know the Jane here? How long do I know you? A couple, uh, couple years, right? Yeah, a couple years. Do you, what, li you what live here? Well, I don't know what you want. What do you want with me? Are they your clothes in the closet? <sighs> They're his clothes. Yeah, Did you leave any money with her? 
You left the you left an envelope with her, didn't you? Some dough. She said you How did. Much it... Shut up. You keep quiet. How much did you leave with her? Well, look, I, I, look, I want a lawyer. I mean, I want no, a lawyer. I, I don't get a lawyer. You get a lawyer. How much well, did you leave with her? How much money? She said no, you left no, the money. No, I did. All right, I left her some money. She I said you left 800 no. bucks. Is that right? I didn't leave. No. How much did you leave? No, no, no. You didn't, you didn't count leave. it. I didn't leave any $800. Sell me. What are you going to You got a charge or something? Well, my charge. You'll tell me. We're going to give you 48. Did you ever hear about a 48? I don't know what it is, no. Well, we make out a short affidavit down in court, see? And it's a 48. And if we can't find anything on you in 48 hours, we give you another 48. And we keep giving you 48. Until you get wise to your own. All right, get them up. We'll take them down the house. Wait till I see that Joe. I'll tell him. Come on, keep going, Dunk. Next time, I'll borrow somebody else's car. And that was Cops and Robbers. With real cops and not-so-real robbers. They were actors, and I'm sure you will agree, very good actors. Playing for the most part without a script. Knowing only the backgrounds and motivations of their characters. John Sylvester was Dunk. Elspeth Eric was Ellie. Larry Haynes played Joe. And Ken Lynch was the bartender. The CBS Radio Workshop is grateful to Lieutenant Dan Campion and Detectives Richard Jacobson, Howard Clancy, and Jerry Heaney for helping us try to prove a point. I hope we did. You have been listening to Cops and Robbers on the CBS Radio Workshop. Cops and Robbers was conceived and directed by Stanley Niss, who also acted as your narrator. All names were fictitious except those of our detectives, who are all retired members of the Detective Division, Police Department, City of New York. This is Art Hannis inviting you to listen next week when the CBS Radio Workshop will present The Legend of Jimmy Blue Eyes, a narrative poem set to music by Ray Noble, the story of a jazz trumpeter who sells his soul to the devil. The CBS Radio Workshop is produced in New York by Paul Roberts. Another brilliant concert by the New York Philharmonic Symphony comes to you over most of these same stations on Sunday as Guido Cantelli returns to conduct an exciting program featuring the Beethoven Concerto No. 4 in G Major with the distinguished German pianist William Bachhaus as soloist. Stay tuned for five minutes of CBS News to be followed on most of these same stations by the Jack Carson Show. Tonight, the CBS Radio Workshop was transcribed. This is the CBS Radio Network. A show starring real New York City police detectives broadcast on the eve of St. Patrick's Day. Coincidence? Well, in any case, it was an episode called Cops and Robbers from the CBS Radio Workshop in 1956. It came to you from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. There's another birthday we're celebrating tonight, in addition to Stan Freeberg's, and it's that of a woman who was a great talent, a great beauty, and at one time, one of the highest-paid actors in the movies. Her name is Billy Burke, and she's best known today for her small role in the movie musical The Wizard of Oz as Glinda, the Good Witch of the North. Ms. Burke, who passed away in 1970, was born here in Washington, D.C. on August 7th. 1884. We're going to hear her on the singer Rudy Valley's Seal Test show, where she co-stars with the once big star John Barrymore. The two had appeared in another movie classic, 1933's Dinner at Eight. At this point in his career, Mr. Barrymore was playing a caricature of himself, with his legendary drinking and his many marriages. Ms. Burke, as you'll hear, is a terrific comedian. 
Some of the jokes and references are about the host Rudy Valley's saxophone playing, Bing Crosby's many children, and the pot of gold, that radio show that required listeners to be sitting by their phones so they could accept giveaway prizes of money. Also appearing on this show is Lorraine Tuttle, an actor we hear often on the big broadcast, but seldom as a singer. Wait till you hear her, despite the less-than-optimal audio quality. From November 28, 1940, and NBC, it's the Rudy Valley Seal Test Show. The Seal Test System of Laboratory Protection presents Rudy Valley with John Barrymore and Billy Burke. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Rudy Valley welcoming you to another SEAL test program. Tonight's story is concerned with paid escorts. Those romantic and unique white-collar workers, or rather white-tie workers, who offer their services as escorts for nominal fee to lonesome ladies. One of said lonesome ladies being Miss Billy Burke, and one of said escort being yours truly, who is in the employ of the master escort of them all, John Don Juan Barrymore. Good morning. Don Juan and Casanova Incorporated Escort Service. Classy dates at minimum rates. You bring the kale, we furnish the mail. This is Rudy Valley, one of Mr. Barrymore's escorts. Who is this? It's Billy Burke. Yes, Miss Burke. We have a complete line of young men. Forty of them. Oh, yes, yes. You can open a charge account. No, no, we don't give out samples. What's that? You'll be right over? I'll tell Mr. Barrymore. Goodbye. Thank you. Good morning, Valley. Ah, good morning, Mr. Barrymore. Valley, I've had a lot of complaints about you. How many times have I got to tell you that this is an artistic business? Taking women out is an art. Being romantic is an art. Handling women is an art. You ought to know, Rembrandt. <laughs> Never mind that. Valley, you're slipping. Last night... You were out to the rich Mrs. Higginbotham. This morning, she closed her account. What did you do? Well, sir, we were riding home in a taxi all alone. and I felt that I should have whispered something in her ear. I didn't know what to say. So I thought to myself, what would our boss, Mr. Barrymore, whisper in her ear at a time like this? Well, did you whisper it? She closed the account, didn't she? <laughs> <laughs> Valet, that reminds me. We've had several complaints lately about your dullness as a conversationalist. So why, sir? Whatever do you mean? Just this, Valet. <laughs> the expression, don't take no wooden nickel, is no longer considered the height of witty repartee. It isn't? Well, how about, you tell him, kid, I stutter. <laughs> Only in a pinch. Now, where are the rest of the escort? Boys! Oh, what Hi, boss. Boys, did you uh, practice up on your witty conversation? Oh, yes, night? sir. Yes, sir. We all sat up last night and read the book you wrote entitled What to Say, How to Say It, When to Say It, and Don't Put It in Writing by John Barrymore. <laughs> ah, all right. And we'll see what you've learned. Now, uh, you're out dancing with a wealthy widow. Suddenly, you look at her adoringly and say, Madame... You are as light on your feet 
as a feather. Right. Miss Schwartz, when I am with you, an hour seems like a... A minute. Let me look at your... Your eyes are like too limpid. Cool. Your waist is so dainty. I can almost put my hand around it. <laughs> I uh, have to go home to my wife now, but... Don't think it ain't been charming. Now, good night, madame. I've had a lovely time. That'll be $15. Thank you. Call again. That's fine, boys. Now for our next exercise. Miss Jones. Go to the next room and write on the blackboard 20 times. I will never reach for the check. I will never reach for the check. Me too, sir. No, Valley, that's one lesson you don't need. <laughs> now, our next exercise, crooning in ladies shall like yours. Valley, have you been practicing? Yes, sir. A new song, very continental, sir. We are listening... I don't see why you're not a success as an escort. Well, sir, my heart isn't in it. You see, I'm in love. In love? 
Yes, sir. You see, as soon as I make good, I'm going to quit this game and marry. Haven't you ever thought of getting married, sir? Significant pause, wait for laugh. <laughs> Will? Yes. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Mr. Barrymore? Yes? My name is Billy Burke and I'm looking for a man. Mm, what kind of a man have you in mind? Well, what kind have you got? Any kind. Well, that's the kind I have in mind. <laughs> well, we have a nice assorted line of young men, college boys. Oh, no, no, no. That's not for me. I'd like something, something in the old way, the old reprobate type. What are you doing tonight? <laughs> Sorry, madam. I do not go out on ordinary cases. I am a highly specialized craftsman. I am to the escort business. What Shakespeare is to the theater. Oh, well, why don't you make a play for me? <laughs> oh, that's very good, isn't it? <laughs> Whatever it is. Miss Burke, I have an idea. Sally! Uh, come in here a moment. You like this boy, Miss Burke? Rudy, this is Miss Billy Burke. How do you do, madame? Oh, how do you do? Well, Miss Burke, take a good look at him. What do you think? Mm, very interesting. And what will he cost? Fifteen dollars. Oh, I see. What have you got for twenty? <laughs> Just a moment, madame. Mr. Valley is a very talented young man. Really? What do you do, Mr. Valley? I'm a crooner. <laughs> Poor boy. But, Mr. Valley, you don't look like a paid escort. Do you do this sort of thing for a living? Oh, no, it's just temporary. Just since I've been out of college. Oh, how long has that been? Thirteen years. Oh, I see. Just temporary. Now, if I hire you, Mr. Valley, and we're alone, can I trust you to be a gentleman at all times? Of course, ma'am. Everything I know I've learned from Mr. Barrymore. Everything? Yes. Oh, thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs> Just a moment, Miss Burke. I always say, nothing venture, nothing gain. <laughs> oh, yes. I always say, nothing eaten, nothing gained. <laughs> oh, dear. What, what do you always say, Mr. Valley? I always say, you tell him, kid. I stutter. <laughs> oh, charming, charming. Very well, Mr. Valley. I'll see you at eight, and you won't know me with my gold lame evening gown, my dancing slippers, my orchids, my pearl necklace, and uh, will I need anything else? Just, Just your checkbook. checkbook. Oh, goodbye. Rudy, I'll see you at eight. Mr. Barrymore. What is it, Miss Grieben? Look what it says here in the paper. Miss Billy Burke inherits three million dollars. <laughs> three million dollars. <laughs> Barrymore, what have you done? The pot of gold. Pick your number. And you're listening to the Lone Ranger. <laughs> now let me tell you about another escort service. 
the greatest the world has ever known. It is that vast army of workers who every morning escort fresh, wholesome milk to millions of American homes. You're right, Lou. And Seal Test plays a prominent part in that service to American homes by supervising the quality and purity of the milk produced by its member companies. I wish I could take all of you through a dairy plant in which a Seal Test laboratory is located. You'd be amazed at the test to which Seal Test milk is subjected. Tests for quality, for richness, for purity, for acidity, and many others. You'd see Seal Test men in white checking machinery and equipment for cleanliness, inspecting various processes as the milk passes through. And just think, that single laboratory is only one unit in a chain of Seal Test laboratories spread over a good part of America, all of them combining their skill and knowledge to produce pure, wholesome milk, ice cream, and other dairy products for your table. So, mothers, since Seal Test milk is as pure and wholesome as you could want, since no other milk can offer you Seal Test laboratory protection, isn't that the milk you want for your family? And don't forget that thrilling Seal Test chocolate fudge ice cream pie is sold only until the end of the month. Why not enjoy one tonight? We'll tell you shortly where to buy Seal Test milk and ice cream in your community. But now, to continue the story of the Don Juan Escort Service, we take you to the home of Miss Billy Burke. Billy, I never heard of such a thing. A woman of your age hiring an escort. Now, Lorene, there's nothing to worry about. I can take care of myself. After all, I, I'm an experienced woman, a woman of the world. Well. And right now, I feel I could stand a little more experience. But Auntie, running an escort is so... Why, oh, I don't look at it that way. Somehow I feel that I've just rented a tuxedo and had it stuffed. <laughs> oh, but wait till you see this escort. He's a Yale man. Such a handsome chap. A Yale man? How much does he cost? Fifteen dollars. Fifteen dollars? Andy, is any man worth fifteen dollars? Mm, this one is. Why, he's got ten dollars worth of permanent wave on him alone. <laughs> well, I don't care. I think it's terrible. I know that I'd never have anything to do with a man who would sell himself for a mess of pottage. A mess of pottage? See here, my dear, that's no way to talk about your aunt. Well, Aunt Dilly, all I know is the boy I'm in love with would never stoop to such a job as that. Lorene, my dear, you in love? Oh, who is he? Oh, a boy I met last year, Jack from Maine. He's a saxophone player in a nice sort of way. Lorene. <laughs> you don't, you don't mean, you can't mean, Lorene. You're not in love with a saxophone player. Yes, Auntie. Oh, good heaven. We haven't had that sort of thing in the family since Cousin Tessie ran off with a lightning rod salesman. <laughs> well, he's not a saxophone player anymore. Besides, we're going to be married just as soon as he makes good. Well, that's better. I hope he makes good very soon. Now, you better run along and dress, Auntie. It's almost eight o'clock. Oh, all right, dear. And when my escort arrives, uh, let me know immediately. All right, Auntie. See. I wonder if Rudy's in town. I wonder if he got my letter. More than you know, man of my heart, I love you so. Lately I find you're on my mind more than you know. Whether it's right, whether it's wrong, 
man of my heart, I'll string along. You need me so more than you'll ever know. Loving you the way that I do, there's nothing I can do. Your letter. Oh, that's how you knew I was here at Aunt Billy's. Why, of course, Aunt Billy's. Aunt Billy's? You mean Miss Burke is your aunt? Rudy? Who's there? Rudy Bowie. Well, have him come in. I'd be right now. Come in the house, Rudy. Oh, let's just stay out here, honey. Out on the sidewalk? Yes, let's just stay out here and hop ice wagons or something. <laughs> oh, now, Rudy, you come right in the house. Come on in here. I want you to meet Aunt Billy. She's upstairs dressing. <laughs> Rudy, you know what she's doing tonight? What? She's going out with one of those paid escorts. No. Yes. Yes? Can you imagine? Yes. <laughs> Rudy, you haven't told me you love me or what you're doing for a living. I love you. <laughs> well, what type of work are you doing? Well, I, I sort of steer people around. I'm sort of a pilot. Oh, an aviator. Oh, how thrilling. How wonderful, Rudy. Whoever gave you the idea? A fellow named John Barrymore. John Barrymore? A pilot, too? Pilot? He's one of the greatest barnstormers of all time. <laughs> you know, I think I've heard of him. Isn't he a trick flyer? Well, he's done some pretty strange stunts in his day. <laughs> Flying blind and everything, you know. <laughs> oh, gee, Rudy, I, I'm worried about you being a flyer. Isn't it dangerous piloting those old crates around? You should see some of the wrecks I take out. <laughs> oh, gosh, Rudy. I'm glad to hear that things are working out so beautifully. I hope you haven't forgotten all those things we planned. Forgotten? Why, Louise? A cigarette that bears a lipstick traces An airline ticket to romantic places And still my heart has wings These foolish things remind me of you A tinkling piano is the next apartment Those tumbling words that fall What my heart meant 
the fairground painted swing. These foolish things remind me of you. You came, you saw, you conquered me. When you did that to me, I knew somehow this had to be. The winds of March that make my heart a dance, a telephone that rings, but who's to answer? Oh, how the ghosts of you cling, these foolish things remind me Here I am, and all is set. And Billy, this is Rudy Valley. Yes, isn't it? <laughs> well, my dear, didn't he bargain at fifteen dollars? Just the tip, of course. The tip. Oh, Rosie! Now, Lorraine, I see it all now. Selling yourself like a piece of merchandise over a bargain counter. Oh, Rudie, you're nothing but a gigolo. I never want to see you again as long as I live. You, you stuffed up feet, oh, you. <laughs> Hello? Hello? John Juan Barrymore Escort Service. A man for every occasion, occasionally a man. <laughs> Mr. Barrymore, this is Dolly, and I'm finished. I'm through. I'm quitting. You are quitting? Yes. I'm no tough tuxedo. I'm sick and tired of being sold like a piece of merchandise over a bargain counter. I'm no bargain. That, my dear lad, is one of the more self-evident proofs. But... What about Miss Burke and the three million dollars? What about the Burke Fox, me buck Send another man out. I'm through. Goodbye. Mm. Another man. Three million dollars. Hey. Hey, Jones. Uh, are you busy tonight? No, sir. I'm not busy. Burroughs, what are you doing tonight? Oh, nothing, sir. Nesta, are you busy tonight? No, sir. Uh, well, it looks like I have to go myself. Larry on with the chapeau, and go after the dough. Now, intermission for exactly 60 seconds while we take our weekly trip around America. Here we go to all of those communities where seal test milk and ice cream are sold. Ready?
Jasper. How ravishing you are. The vision of loveliness that falls upon mine eyes in radiant splendor. The very flowers wilt with jealousy at thy breathless beauty. This doorway is the east. And thou art the sun. Oh, yes, you're the man to fix the sink. Sink! <laughs> oh, 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 I'm so sorry. Now I remember you, you're Mr. Barrymore, the man who runs the escort bureau. Correct. I am the man who sold you your escort. Oh, really? Well, it's working very well. It is, eh? <laughs> yes. Did you come to service it? No. <laughs> I came to replace it. You see, when I found out about your fina- your social position, I realized that you require an escort who is in the social swim, a member of the 400. Oh, are you a social registrarite? Well, <laughs> lady, the blood that runs through me veins is as blue as your eyes. Oh, I like a man with red blood, more the color of your eyes. <laughs> You do make yourself sound awfully glamorous and kind of naughty. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I think I'll take you. Of course, sir, for you, there will be no charge. Oh, but, uh, how nice. Then I say $15. $15? <laughs> Way for $15. I wouldn't even uncork me cologne. <laughs> Do you realize what John Barrymore brings in the open market? Yeah. The minimum fee for escorting a lady is $100. Oh, $100. Oh, why, for that, I could have six Rudy Valleys. Six Rudy Valleys. What? What a thought. <laughs> Madame, you do not realize the overhead we have in this business. Now, let me say that I'm escorting a lady who lives in, uh, well, a penthouse. Look at the expenses. Dress suit, $5. Patent leather pumps, $5. Parachute, $10. Watchdog, $3. What's the watchdog for? So I will not have to use the parachute. <laughs> <laughs> But don't worry, Lorene, darling. I'm through the escort service. There's only one girl I want to escort again. That's you. Oh, do you mean that, Rudy? Cross my heart. We could make such beautiful music together. Mm-hmm. We could sing the loveliest love songs together. Mm-hmm. Our hearts beat in temple. Sound of our voices will ring. The touch of our lips make us sing. The, the touch of our lips will be mad. Lovely chords will sound in the blend of a funeral. You and I and love are the blending of true notes, no blue notes. Oh, 
so happy, Rudy. We'll settle down and buy a little house. You'll get another job. Gee, Lorraine, I wish I was rich as your Aunt Billy Burke. And I could give you all the nice things you deserve. Oh, don't envy Aunt Billy. According to the will, if she gets married, the three million dollars goes to charity. Rudy! Hey, boy, congratulate us. I'm the luckiest man of the whole world. We just got married. Auntie! You married, Mr. Barry? Oh, yes, I'm so happy. We just come from the nicest justice of the peace. He was so sweet to us. He seemed to know John very well. Imagine that. Oh, I was amazed at Mr. Barrymore. He was cool and calm, not a bit nervous during the wedding ceremony. Madam, would Bing Crosby be nervous at a christening? <laughs> Come. Come, Billy, my little pigeon. Let us stroll through the garden. In the moonlight. Oh, the moonlight, the night, and you. Three reasons to be very happy. I can make it three million. Ah, well. We'll be so happy, my precious. We'll have a 40-room mansion with three swing pools. Oh, I, I, I do hope we'll get along. And two or three town cars. I, I'll try to make you happy. Several limousines. Of course, we, we won't have any money. And a polo heels and a yacht. And... What? Baby won't have any money. Not a penny. <laughs> I've gone and done it again. <laughs> done what? Married for love. <laughs> Come on, Lorene. Thank goodness money doesn't mean that much to us. We're as rich as long as we have one another. Really? You, know, you don't even have a job. Don't worry, honey. We'll get by. There'll always be plenty of food on our table. After all, two can live as cheaply as one. But, Rudy, suppose, uh, suppose the thought comes to our house. Uh, how much can a stalk eat? <laughs> we'll be back next week with the story of the great jewel robbery with John Barrymore as a master criminal and myself as a great detective. Assisting us will be Secret Gordy and Vince Barnett. This is Rudy Valley reminding you to look for the red and white seal test symbol when you buy milk, ice cream, and other dairy products. What about good night? Miss Billy Burke appears with the courtesy of Metro Golden Mayor and is currently seen on the screen in Hullabaloo. Field Test Incorporated and its member companies are subsidiaries of the National Dairy Products Corporation. This is the National Broadcasting Company. The Rudy Valley Seal Test Show with John Barrymore and guest star Billy Burke, whose 138th birthday would have been tonight. It brings us almost to the end of the big broadcast tonight. We want to salute one more birthday... This one, happily, of an artist still very much with us. The day after tomorrow, August 9th, marks the 75th birthday of the singer and songwriter Barbara Mason. She's authored and performed a number of radio hits, and we're going to hear her first big one. Recorded in March of 1965 and released in May of that year on the Arctic Records label, it was a top-five tune on both the Billboard Hot 100 and R&B charts. She's still performing from time to time, and doubtless still singing this song that she wrote, Yes, I'm Ready. For co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and audio engineers Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. <laughs>